You can't do that bit from Do They Know It's Christmas. <laughs> How's it going? Um, it's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. And in our, in our world of plenty, we can spread a smile of joy. Throw your arms around the world at Christmas time. Almost. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you so fucking much. That is... Make sure you put, <laughs> put some reverb on that. <laughs> Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Toby. And I'm Robert Diamond. This is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, mm. I am feeling like I have an irresistible urge to create. Oof. Some might say that's compulsive, which is how today's guest has actually described his need for actually not only making art, because he paints and does drawings and makes sculptures. You could even say he is a living artwork himself, because since the early 80s, when I think he came to prominence in the world's um, stage through music at that time, he has captivated fans all over the universe, pretty much. I'm sure on the moon, they love him for his hats, for his style, <laughs> for his charisma. and um, his creativity. Robert. His creativity. And we're actually currently in, in a studio surrounded by all of his amazing collages and paintings and they are bejeweled and there's like even smiley faces which references his interest in DJ culture perhaps um, I actually met him for the first time in about 1998 in Ministry of Sound when I was about 17 I think I got in probably illegally uh, because a friend of mine was head of PR there and I, I was really scared of nightclubs we'll talk about it later but I always remembered he made me feel very comfortable and he was just hilarious and very down to earth so we are thrilled for our Christmas episode Woo-hoo. to welcome to Talk Art Boy George. Hello, guys. So, interestingly, you both have the same moon. Gemini moon. So, because, you know, you seem like you really click with each other. I've mean, never no, met you together like this. <laughs> yeah. No, but there's like, you've got the same moon. You're Scorpio, Gemini moon, and you are... I'm a Scorpio. You're Scorpio, so you're both exactly the same star sign. Yeah. You're both got Gemini moons. That's interesting. I, I think you got a Gemini moon. He's, yeah. a different, he's not the yeah. same day as me. No, he's got a Scorpio. He's got a Scorpio. He's got a Gemini moon. So all Scorpios have a Gemini moon? No. Oh. No, different ones. Because I was born on a different no, day. October you're 14th. 26, 26. 26. Days and 80, right? Yeah. You're a Gemini moon. It's just random. So we're the same you're moon. the same moon, but different years. So, like, I'm born on the same day as Donald Trump. Whoa. Sorry, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Lily Savage, Alan Carr and Che Guevara. So the thing is, it's random. It's not necessarily... I just think that, you know, with... People say star signs are rubbish, right? And they're welcome to that opinion. But there's something about people you meet. You start, when you start to research it, you go, oh, that's interesting. Because what it does, it tells you how you're going to get on with someone. So there's certain star signs. It just gives you a little roadmap to the person's personality. So there's certain things you wouldn't say to certain star signs, certain things that wouldn't work, like if you were too pushy or aggressive or too opinionated. So sometimes it's good you check yourself until you get to know the person. And then you... Do you do this before you meet everyone? You do? Everyone. So, so for us as Scorpios with Gemini moons, what should you not be doing with us? Well, everybody always says Scorpio. Scorpio. Actually, Scorpio is a lot of fun. Scorpio moon is different because your moon is your emotion. So the moon is how you are emotionally. So Scorpio moon, like, you know what I mean? Like, or Leo moon, lion in your heart, like quite prideful. So it's really about characteristics. I know that my stubbornness comes from my cancer because we're like, we've got crabs. We're, you know, we, we, we protect our own. 
and we're sort of insanely loyal, like to the point to our own detriment, <laughs> we're loyal to people that like kick us in the eye. It's one of those weird things. But it's not about, because people always say, oh, is that bad? And you go, no, there's nothing bad about any of it. It's just really interesting to, like, for example, people say that's rubbish. If you start talking about their star sign, they're very interested. What are they rubbish? And then they go, "Well, what do you know about?" Oh my god! So well, if I, I like the fact that you've researched us because we've obviously researched you before today's interview. But that's I really think it's really important because, like, for example, sometimes you meet people not in a judgmental way, but sometimes you meet people and you don't know anything about them, and you might say something really hurtful or something just inappropriate. Not. You know, like, you don't know about what they've been through, so you might make assumptions. And I always think it's really helpful to know something about someone. You know, if someone's Googleable, <laughs> look them up and you go, oh, yeah, because you can tell a lot about a person and how you might feel around them if you've got a little bit of insight into them. From doing lots of research on you today and yesterday, I was really struck by the way you care about what you say now, you know, in the new era that we're all living in on social media and everything, having come from like the 80s, 70s, when people did just sort of say how they felt very bluntly in a way, but how you've kind of evolved. And I feel like you've been on this big sort of journey. I feel like I care less about having the last word, which is a really good thing, because having the last word is very Gemini, but it's also quite overrated. And it's, I think, more about, like, people trapping you in the idea they have of you. We all have... The, I mean, I think when you're famous, you know, you have this narrative that's out there, and people are like, oh, I know what you are, and they kind of judge you, or they maybe they're a bit nervous around me sometimes. There's people fuss around me. And actually, Gemini's hate fuss. But if you don't fuss enough, I'm going to get pissed <laughs> off. So you can't win with, with me. <laughs> so I'm like, don't ignore me, but don't drive me mad. You know, so it's a weird thing. I think at this point in my career, you know, when I meet people, they have an idea of what they think I'm going to be like. Yeah. And I like to surprise them or disappoint them in the sense that, oh, that's not who I am. And, and you know, and actually... You know, it's I mean, some, people, some people don't care either. So it's like, some people, it doesn't matter, you know. Some people have no idea who you are. You know, they're like, six. <laughs> I think you're Captain Hook. <laughs> but, you know, generally, with me, like, my reputation kind of dances ahead of me. And it can be a good thing because people expect nightmares. And they're like, oh, you're, really, you're, you know, you're chill. But I have earned my chillness. It's something that I've worked on and worked on. I always wanted to be chill when I was 14. I was always a bit of a loner. I used to wander off a lot on my own. I was always on my own. And I think as I've got older, I've really started to enjoy being on my own, not in a kind of lonely way or not in an isolated way, but just, you know, learning to be with your own, in your own company, I think is really important. We're talking about surprising people. I mean, we're in your studio now looking at your art. Not many people know that you make art and you have been doing it for many years now. And you've had exhibitions and this is... It seems a daily practice for you now. It's kind of random. I kind of work on five things at once. I'll like do something, then get bored and think it's rubbish. Put it behind, put it behind a door. And go, oh my god, what is that? And then go back to it a few weeks later. You go, oh, I might be a genius. You know, it's just a weird. It's like music as well. I feel like, for me, um, like when I got kicked out of school, the last thing I saw before I got expelled was a picture I'd done of you my got sister. Expelled? Yeah, I got expelled for what? Just for not going. <laughs> Because I read that you hated school, but you loved art. Hated school, but sort of loved 
certain teachers. The art teacher. There was a certain t- art teacher, English teacher, and actually, weirdly, my religious education teacher was great as well because that was like a debate class, so it was good, you could argue, and I love that. I love being involved in that. But I think, you know, when I left school, I remember seeing this picture I was done of my sister, a pencil drawing, and I thought I should have taken it because they probably just chucked it in the bin <laughs> once I got kicked out. And it was really the only thing that I was good at at school. I was always, like, drawing Bowie pictures. You know, I remember famously drawing the cover of Diamond Dogs with the penis, you know, and thinking I was being really clever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm going to do the original cover. But, yeah, it was kind of like... I think I was always born to kind of just be self-employed, you know, creative. So if I'm not singing and I'm painting, if I'm not painting, I'm trying to do something on clothes, but... To me, they're all related, particularly the music now. So what started to happen in the last couple of years is that I've started to do paintings and then writing songs mm. about the painting. Mm. I did, I show you, I've got it in my studio. I've got this painting called Fell Over, which is these two queens that I thought maybe got beat up to start with. I thought I put blood on them and they were like a bit dishevelled. And I showed it to a friend of mine and I goes, do they look like they've been queer bash? And she goes, she could have fell over. I was like, that's a great song title. So I ended up writing this insane song called Fell Over, which is great. So I feel like since I've got out of my way creatively, stopped being such a... I mean, I wouldn't say I'm not a control freak, because I am, but just anything can be a song. You know, I think that what I've learned since the pandemic is how simple it is and how people try to dress it up and blind you with the science of it when actually all they're doing is taking words that already exist and putting them into a rhythm or a melody. If you look at any song, and I said this in my book, you know, Wigfield and Prince is the same process. It's just you might think the other person's cooler, but they're using the same process. Saturday night, you know, I never meant to make you happy, whatever. You know, it's like you're just saying stuff. And I think the point is always, I mean, it's the same with art. Yeah, lots of people do art. And you know what I think what's amazing about right now? There's so much talent out there. When you go online, you look on Instagram or on whatever on the internet, it's like, wow, people are amazing. We just didn't know them before. There's, they had no window. There was no one, there was nowhere they could show who they are. You know what I mean? And now it's like, wow, the competition is insane. So I think you're always coming back to what what you're about is really comes through the work. Like, you know, whether you're Tracy Emin or Gilbert and George or whatever, it's really the character that you've created is part of it as well. You know, in the same way, a musician, you know, why do we like certain musicians? We like the songs, but we like Madonna in her comb bra, Madonna, whatever, you know, Prince in his high heels, Boy George in his hat and dreadlocks, whatever. It's always more than just what the person's doing. It's their intention, I think, that is key. And I think I've realised that after many years of being confused about what it was. Now I just go, it's just all of it. It's it's just, it's all a reflection of who I am and what I see and how I feel. And the more I I do that, the better. I like how humble you are, but I think you are reducing the fact that you are a genius to a certain extent when it comes to songwriting and lyrics and what you've achieved. And I love the fact that you say, you know, you're empowering people, that everybody can do it, and it is just an accumulation of words strung together. But what you have done is you have communicated your authentic self or, or this version of yourself that you want to communicate so clearly for decades. But I've got more... I was going to say I've got better at it, I think. I've just got looser with it. And it's sort of suddenly I go, it's actually much easier if I get out of my way. 
you know? And the thing is now there's so many amazing tools like the internet, but also the iPhone that someone says something, you go, that's brilliant. Oh my God, that's the opening line of a song. It can mm. be... But is it age that's done that or just years of experience? I think or? in the pandemic, yeah. I, had, I was living in a hotel. I come back from Australia. My house was being refurbished. I couldn't move into my house. I went to a hotel in the centre of London and I was in Soho on my own. It was insane. Wow. And it was like I rallied against it for a while and then I thought, what can I do with this space? So I started to write. And I started to do stuff online. I was like, you know, connecting with Dean, who does a lot of my visuals, like sort of um, videos and things like that. So we were going back and forth, making in this insane show called Little Greedy Show and just being an idiot. And everyone was saying to me, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just really just enjoying myself because I don't know what to do. Yeah. And then at a certain point, I was able to go into a bubble with my writing partner, Benny D, in Farringdon. So I was able to back down there, you know, with my mask on and just carry on working. And I realised I'd never had the time to do that amount of writing. And I'm at a point now where I have literally hundreds of songs, like hundreds, and very different, like punk rock, electro, because I suddenly thought, why don't I just do all the things I wanted to do back then? You know, because I was in a band and... There was four, three other people and they kind of slightly dictated, you know, there was always mm -hmm. arguments about what we wanted to sound like. Whereas now, if I want to make a record like The Human League or, you know, Soft Cell or whatever, I can do that and I can channel it because I was there and I loved it and it was just something that I didn't indulge myself with. I've heard you also talk about the intention behind what you say now is more important and you're kind of realising that the power of what you say and the impact that can have, A, on other people, but also just on the world at large. I'm not always very good at it and I am definitely a hypocrite because <laughs> in, in my recent book I've had a, a couple of people, but in a Gemini way, I'm saying... But what way is that? In what way? Well, you're genius, but you're awful. Right. And, you know, which do you choose to be? Because, like, I can be genius and awful. Mm. You know, the Gemini thing is... They say two-faced, but actually it's, you're always in two minds. So a Gemini can love and hate you in the same breath, which you might find emotionally as something that you feel, you know, like you can be sort of like, I love you, but you really get on my nerves and no one else understands why you stay with that person. <laughs> because you've got, this, you've got this thing that you, you know that they're... I don't know, it's a weird thing. We, we're actually both like that, but in different ways. No, no. Probably, it's probably that year I'm apart. a Gemini as a person and I'm like that. <laughs> right. I do that thing where I forget to tell people I love them because I want them all to read my mind. That's a real Gemini trait. Like, what do you mean? You know I love you. I'm here. I'm doing everything for you. Sometimes people need to hear that. So it's interesting because obviously I understand that words are powerful. I've got this new song called London Lingo. And I say, London lingo, I used to say it like that, now it's a no-no, you know? And it's this thing of like, you know, the argument about pronouns and this and that, and it's like, actually, I go back to when I was a punk. Don't you dare say I'm not a punk. I'm going to kill you because <laughs> yeah. I'm not a punk. Or call me a new romantic. I don't think I ever called myself a new romantic, but I went round, I called myself Boy George. Do you know what I mean? You know, so that's hilarious, actually, to even have an issue with it. Because you go, actually, do you know what? When you're a teenager or when you're younger... You do want to... You don't like the world. It tells so you what you are. How do, so the boy came from you not wanting to be an adult? The boy came from people saying, who's the girl? 
Because all our photographs in the early days, obviously I was in full drag, basically. And people say, oh, the girl's beautiful, what's her name? And John's like, no, it's not a girl. Became this thing. But it also started when I was a kid, because when I was like six or seven, I was very girly. And people say, what's your daughter's name? And I used to go mad. I'm a boy, I'm a boy. And then, of course, I go over it. And just decided I didn't want to be a boy, but called myself boy. I thought it was funny. It's called myself Boy George, because everywhere we went, everyone was like, oh, what's a girl called? And I was like, oh, it's hilarious, you know. Because obviously when I opened my mouth, it was obvious I wasn't a girl. Is it, is it an, or was it an alter ego at that time? And was it like armour in some way? Um, there's a funny thing about dressing up that is, it changes the alchemy of every meeting you have. Like if you're in your civvies, yes. so if I, like you turn up and say you've dressed up, but actually I find even when I go and do radio, I dress up because... They don't want to meet George O'Dowd. That's not who they want to interview. They want to do Boy George. Not that there's a separation between the two. I'm not mad. I don't go around going, oh, Boy George is doing this and George O'Dowd. But I understand that once you start dressing up, put the makeup on and the hat on, you present yourself in a way that people recognise and then it suddenly changes the way they treat you. Whereas literally sometimes you can be with someone in your civvies and they're being a bit patronising, a little bit like, oh, yeah, you know... 62, you know, and then you get your fierce drag on and suddenly it's like, hello. (laughs) And it it is such a fascinating thing. And I think I've just started to enjoy it more as I've got older to say, actually, I really see the difference between, you know, going off on the tube with my little beanie on, you know, pair of sunglasses, walking around London. I'm always out, you know, I go on the tube and the bus, whatever I want to do. I don't let anything stop me doing anything. I'm careful because obviously... As a gay man, you have to have a radar, and I'm very, my radar's good. I don't walk into trouble. I'm very aware of what's going on, but also, you know, follow the Quentin Crisp thing, walk fast and avoid eye contact. <laughs> but, but <laughs> Do if you people, find that now? Have you felt there's been ebbs and flows of that for you? I think if you a... are too obvious, you know, if you're sort of, you know, I've seen, you know, people react now. They, they, they feel like they don't have to not... People shout stuff out now, which used to happen in the 70s. Yeah. But I've seen it happening to other people. I've seen, like, very effeminate guys with a handbag or whatever, not in drag, but just not complying. And people shout stuff out now. And I think, oh, my God, that used to happen to me. You know, it's so funny. Isn't that awful, though, that that is? It's awful. It's like everything's circular. It's like it goes through a place where it's everything's progressive and everything's great. And now it feels like it's going backwards and people feel like they have the right to say things. I think we're really overexposed right now. I think that the internet is brilliant. I love the internet, but it has opened everyone's windows. Whereas we didn't know anything before. We didn't know. We used to think beauty was a commodity. Now you go, oh my God, everyone's gorgeous. It's insane. Mm. You know, you used to think it was like 10 people, like in the Face magazine or ID. And now you go online and you go, wow, People are stunning. Oh, my God. You know, everyone's fit. Everyone's in their underwear. It is insane. I mean, it's like, it's a fabulous time to be gay. <laughs> you know, in a voyeuristic yeah. sense. Like, God, it's so beautiful. People are just enjoying themselves. Yeah, yeah. But what comes with that is this attitude, you're trying to take over the world. Oh, you lot. You know, because now there's more drag queens than there are pubs. You know, there's more, people see more trans people and there's, there's a voice. And that's what frightens them. Because... When I go on stage, I often say to the crowd, everyone okay? And everyone's, no one's had a funny turn in the last 30 years since you've been following me, everyone's cool. And they laugh and I'll say, because, you know, obviously, back then I used to hear that I was the end of civilization, but nothing really happened, did it? And they kind of get a sense of, 
how ridiculous that thinking is. You know, that if you see drag queens on the internet or on the TV or if you hear about trans people, they're trying to take over the world. And that is really what the base of the fear is. You're having to go, my way of life. And you go, actually, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to get across the road. Yeah, I don't want anything to do I know, exactly. It's nothing to do with you. And, And by the way... But it's okay if, if you want to make it something to do with you in a good way. Yeah, fine. exactly. And listen, I say my generation, we weren't heterophobic. All my, f- I just, you know, it sounds funny. Some of my best friends are straight, but a lot of my friends are straight and I don't have that conversation with them. Never have, never would. You know, it's like my friends are cool, you know, and they're interesting and they're kind of flirtatious and, you know, there isn't that kind of hang up, you know. I think things have definitely got more categorized you know i'm this and i'm that and for me as a gay man you know a certain type of gay man i don't want people walking around i think they know me just because of what they've read or what they've seen it's like no we're all complex infinite universes you know the idea of knowing someone even someone that's been in your life for 40 years sometimes you go oh my god i'm the worst judge of character so i think you know we're all much more than we think we are, and everybody else is much more than we sometimes think we are. One of the things I really love about you is how open-hearted you are when it comes to like all different kinds of people. And that obviously Mm. comes, I think we all had childhood where we grew up feeling like an outsider, but you're very sort of like, everyone's welcome. Like whoever you are, just bring that to the table. And in a kind of like allyship sense, I guess. And and you've really been there for a lot of women in particular. I think of Sinead O'Connor, for example, on your last album, um, the Dub album from 2020. I think that album is totally extraordinary. I've been listening to it on loop and the final song on it is a duet with Sinead. And I loved Sinead so much from childhood all the way to present day. And I followed everything she did. And that song, if people haven't heard it, they need to hear it. It's called um, Death of... The Death of Samantha, Samantha. which is the Yoko Ono song. Oh, is it? It's the Yoko Ono song, yeah. That and bit I didn't know. I was going to yeah. ask you, like, the title, Death of Samantha. Oh, the, the Yoko Ono version is beautiful. It's yeah. really beautiful. But I've always loved that song. And in fact, it was brilliant because I had to ask Sinead, look, will you sing a Yoko Ono song? And oh, she was right. totally up for it. Yeah. The minute she heard it... I've got a new song that I've just wrote about four months before she died called Sweet Jesus, which I wrote about my mum. And in it I say, oh, sweet Jesus, I love you, Sinead, but I question the Pope sometimes. And I just was thinking about it because it had been a couple of years since I'd seen her. And um, that particular session when, you know, because sharing the musical, sharing the creative space, particularly the musical creative space, is very difficult because we all think we know everything and we all think we know what we're doing and we don't really want anyone else's opinion. So getting someone to come along and just agree, it's easier when it's a cover because then you don't have to, your ego, it's like with someone else's song. But I just loved her. She was so funny. She was like burping and farting and (laughs) just being like, you know, just so like geniusly cantankerous. And I think, you know, those sorts of people, you know, I kind of remember thinking to myself, she doesn't really realise how amazing she is which is kind of beautiful, but also kind of sad because, you know, I've been to see her a few times and it is incredible what she can do. And there's sort of, I went to see her do this concert at the Barbican and she was doing this three-part harmony thing with this, like, folk group and it was just ridiculous. And when I tried to compliment her, she was just like, oh, fuck off, you know? <laughs> it was like, I literally was like, oh, my God. But, you know, she was the real deal. You know, I was very upset when she died. I couldn't believe it, you know. But she was, to me, I was like, whatever went on with her, I was just to say, yeah, but she's so authentic. You know, she's mm. just, 
she embodies her, her voice comes through you know her pain comes through her singing and a bit like Amy Winehouse in you know, that sort of your pain makes a, an amazing sound. Also in that song when she sings Cool Chick, I mean, her vocal in that track is like next level. And I just, yeah, I just totally love her. Yeah, and I was really lucky. And I wanted to do other stuff. I wanted to, wanted to write with her. And, you know, it's just, you have to be careful how much you push someone. <laughs> what, moon, what, what moon was she? I don't know. Was she? I think she might have been a German. Oh, really? I, think, I don't think, wait a minute. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. This is happening live. <laughs> <laughs> Happening live, guys. Uh, let's have a look. She's a Sag with a Libra moon. Double Sag as well. Double Sag and double Libra. And what's Bowie? Bowie was Capricorn. I can't remember what his moon was. So Google. Did you ever meet Bowie? I know yeah, you saw yeah, I met so you him. saw him when you was really young and he changed. I met your life. him when I was really young as well. So I sat outside his house. And then, on your own or with people? Like? Oh, when I was like 10. I was like 10 or 11. I got so much trouble. I used to go every Sunday. What, to hit to Bowie's house? I used to go to Beckenham where he lived, yeah. And o- on your own at 10? Yeah, on the bus. My, the bus from Elton went to Beckenham. Because you're a Kent boy? Uh, yeah, Elton, South East London. So I saw, I went to, I was going to deliver a, My brother Richard sent me to go and get some film developed and gave me like 20 p's to get some sweets. I can't remember what the money was even then. So I was about to go into the chemist and I was, someone distracted me and I turned... Saw this bus and it said Beckenham, and I thought, five pounds. <laughs> and gets Beckenham, so I just went on the bus, knowing I was going to get a slap when I got home. And that was the first time I went. Then How I did you know where band. he lived? How did you find the house? And just went to Beckenham, walked around, found some people that looked a bit like Bowie fans, all dressed up with orange hair. I was like, oh, are you looking for David's house? They were like, yeah, we know where it is. And they took me up there. I, so, and you would sit outside. Yeah, sit how outside. did you know him at ten? I mean, how did he? Well, have my that brother played you? stuff from uh, the Man Who Sold the World that album, and so I'd heard him, and then I just fell in love with him, and uh, kind of just yeah, I went to see him nineteen seventy three at Lewis Modi, and I was eleven and a half when I saw him. But you'd already been sitting outside his house. Yeah, I'd been every- sitting outside his house. I mean, there were a few weeks when I wasn't allowed to go because once I'd been there and spent the money, I got in a lot of trouble. So. It was like a two-week hiatus where I couldn't go, and then this I went is back. An amazing but when story. I met him years ago, when I met him years later, because I put it in my book, because Angie Bowie opened the window and told us to fuck off. Oh yeah, we were delighted. And that, when I met, <laughs> yeah, when I met Bowie, were in, you singing out there or just we were waiting? We just sitting there? outside chatting, being annoying, you know. Did you ever meet him at that age? Him coming out the house, grabs him going into Capital Radio <laughs> when he came back from Berlin. So I was at Victoria Station when he came back from Berlin. I was there. And then we all ran to Capital. That was really the last time I sort of properly fangirled because then I became sort of new romantic and thought I was too cool. Then he came to the Blitz to choose people for Ashes to Ashes. And the Blitz was a The Blitz nightclub, which was run by Sea Strange. And I was like called up to go and be selected for the video, but I couldn't get up the stairs because there were so many people in the way, like screaming. All the cool kids in the Blitz all turned to jelly the day Bowie arrived. It was all like suddenly we became 13. And I didn't get chosen for the video, but then I became famous quite soon after that. But I met him a few days later at the Beetroot Club, and I spent hours like, sidling up to him, obviously trying to look like I wasn't interested. <laughs> kind of met him and chatted with him for a couple of minutes. He was very sweet. And then a few years later, when I got famous, I did an internet chat with him. And I said, oh, I've never met you. And he goes, oh, no, I've met you. He said, I remember you from the Beetroot. And I was like, wow, you're mm. amazing. You, can't, you remember? He goes, yeah, I remember. He doesn't remember you outside his house, though. He doesn't remember you outside his house, but he made me tell the story to Iman at, at, at dinner. He said, 
tell us, 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 and that was the most interesting thing she said in the whole of the 70s. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I have to say, Bowie fans love Angie Bowie. Yeah. We love her. I love I mean, her. I was, yeah, we yeah, love totally. her. She what was, was so... it about David Bowie then that changed everything for you? I think it was the singing and the songs, the subject matter, you know, we're painting our faces and dressing in forts from the skies, from paradise. I was like, oh, my God, he's talking to me, you know. On um, Ziggy Stardust, you know, a cop knelt and kissed the feet of a priest and a queer threw up at the sight of that. So I'd never heard those words outside the playground. It was like, queer wasn't a compliment. <laughs> so suddenly I was like, oh my God, this guy's singing about queers and he's singing about, you know, just felt like the message was very... Personal. Abstract mm. and, and felt like he's talking to me. Yeah, he yeah. knows what I'm going through. He understands everything that's happening in my life. And, you know, the songs, you know, very sexual. I mean, Ziggy Stardust was very sexy. I remember I was on my own at that gig and I remember, like, just thinking, wow, I've never seen anyone with their legs out, a man in a sort of almost like a swimsuit. And there was just very, very provocative. You know, the, the thing with Mick Ronson where he goes up and, you know, pretends to give fellatio to the guitar and all of that. And just the subject matter, you know, all the songs that he was singing, like, it was a kind of darkness. It was so other than what was on the radio. You had Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap and all that great, the Swee and, you know, all those 70s glam bands. But Bowie was offering something very... I mean, even on, like, the um, uh, Man Who Sold the World, there's that great song. He swallowed his pride and puckered his lips, showed me the level belt round his hips. He screamed, he hollered the Cahilga Brown. You know, it's like so sexy it was like ooh, mm. what's this about this is like ooh, i don't know what it's about but it's definitely something that's arousing something in me and you know and then you see him and it was very sexual you know it was very sexual but in a sort of alien way it was quite odd because it was feminine but it was also masculine and it was it was just yeah it was just like i don't know i knew at that point that <laughs> there was something odd about me and something about him even though he was probably straight that's when you start to realise it doesn't really matter whether someone's straight or gay if they're not cool. Because if you're an uncool gay person, you're about as useless to me as a, you know, a chocolate radiator. You're not helpful to me. But if you're like a fabulous, you know, radical straight man and you kind of get it, mm. that there's nothing to get and nothing to fear, that you are what you are. And, you know, if you change your mind next week, that's fine as well. I just think people who are less rigid about what they think and that they're willing to change and evolve. And, you know, when I was 19, I used to say I hated hairy men and anyone with hair on their bodies. And I'm like, love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, literally, I was like, I read this thing. When I was 19, I must have been 18, no, maybe 17, I was at heaven on a gay night with my girlfriend at this gay night. And I was wearing, I had bleached hair and somebody interviewed me for Gay Times. And they were like, how old are you? And I was like, 21. And they were like, what kind of men do you like? I've never slept with a man. I was like, oh, I don't like anyone hairy. And I was given this whole list, no one with a beard and you know, all this stuff. And then my mum found it under my pillow. And she was like, what's this? She didn't really read it, but she was like, what? And I said, oh, I was just at a club. You know, she goes, what kind of magazine is this? And I was like, oh, it's for men. <laughs> and then she just, you know, decided not to kind of continue with it, but sort of, was the beginning of her going, hmm, this, you know, they knew. They knew. They always knew, didn't you, mother? Yeah, you're the queer fella, the yeah. queer fella, you know. It's like, 
And then when you get to that point, I don't know if you had that where your parents start telling you they knew gay people in the 60s. I've never had that, no. (laughs) (laughs) My dad was always like, there was a My mum came home once in about 96 and said like, today I met a gay uh, man in a meeting and he has a boyfriend that he lives with. And I think she was doing it to try and be like, okay, to show me. But I didn't talk to her about it for years. I had a friend, well, there was a guy I met in Woolwich who was like this really flamboyant queen called Stephen. And he lived with his mum and his boyfriend, and it blew my mind. I was like... Lived with his mum and his boyfriend? His mom, he lived in his mother's house, and his boyfriend lived there too, which was just... Because I remember like, taking people home and like, being on the sofa and then sort of pushing them off the sofa. My mum opened the door, <laughs> what's going on in here? You know, just laughing, you know. We're just creeping around, you know, like trying not to get caught and everyone sort of knowing sort of what was going on, you know, but not really daring to say it was a... I call these sort of 80s, or sort of spare us the details, decade. You know, shh, don't go on about it. You know, we know what you are, but be quiet. So, yeah. But do you feel like that? That's what I'm saying about the cyclical thing is that you feel like that's sort of the world we're going back into now. I think that people, that's, it's that thing, oh, why do you have to go on about being gay? And it's like, well, why do you have to go on about being straight? You don't have to go on about being straight because you don't have to. Because yeah. it's okay. So, it's just really about new language and new information. It's not like there wasn't as many gay people in the world 20 years ago. They just were more quiet. They just, no one knew who they were. If you went to a gay club in the 70s, meeting someone in America was like so exotic. You know, you met a couple of people that had travelled from New York and they were in a gay mm. club. But basically, it was people that lived, lived around that area that went to gay clubs. You did travel a bit, but it wasn't like it is now where you could be in Miami one minute and then... Budapest and a gay club and it's all, you know, people travel around. But back then it was much more sort of uh, local Mm. until heaven opened. That was the beginning of, oh my God, gays, being gay is like a big thing now in a massive club. But up to then it was like little bars above a pub on a Sunday night. It was very underground. Mm. If you think of yourself um, coming through that era, you know, into your 20s when you you became a superstar, um, how how does that... um, like Bowie obviously unlocked something within you, but you became your own thing. Like Boy George is not referencing, like even though it is referencing maybe some of those things, yeah. like Adamant. That there was a whole era of yeah. music, but you really became your own thing. Like, do you think art played a big part in that? Because you've obviously always had this inclination for drawing and painting and and and, and making your persona and and creating your body almost through makeup as art. I think being sort of. My mum was Aquaria. My mum was an amazing seamstress. My mum was someone who could do tiling. She could fix the roof. You know, she could just... One of those people, Aquarians, they'll love hearing this, they just have that gene. My dad was the same. My dad and my mum were both Aquarians. They were both very artistic. I think in my dad's case, my dad was very frustrated because he had six kids, he had to work, and he couldn't be artistic, but he was beautiful handwriting. He was super intelligent. But he had the other side that was like total fuck, you know, absolutely unreasonable. But my dad was potentially a very creative person, you know, and in fact, later on, he got into Reiki healing, so it changed. Oh, but wow. my mum was one of those people, I'd give her a pair of Vivian Westbrook bonnet trousers, she'd make them to perfection to the point where Vivian oh, she'd came copy up, them for you. Copy she... them and copy wow. them for, like, amazing. I went to a fashion show because... My mum was making my clothes and then I got famous, but I was still wearing the trousers and I was at this fashion show and Vivian Westwood came up and she goes, they're not mine. I said, no. She goes, who made those? And she looked over the trousers and checked them all out. She goes, I said, my mum made them. And she goes, tell her she did a brilliant job. 
That's why I love Vivian. Vivian was so cool. Oh, I love Vivian that Vivian was so, so cool. Much. Like, Vivian didn't care as long as you did it right. Or you added something and she'd go, well, she did a good job. And I explained to Lillian, to Vivian, I used to wander around to all these industrial estates, like full-on punk rocker, looking for the ball clips, looking for the right zips. It couldn't just be any old zip. My mum'd say, no, it can't be that zip. It's got to be the one that she uses. And I'd go to these insane, like, industrial estates in the middle of nowhere and walk in and they'd be like, oh, Sal, only I'd be like, oh, just give me some zips. And they'd have to give me stuff to get rid of me because I was like... <laughs> I had to get the clips. Persistent. Fixed, the, you know, the rings were, had to be the same. It was very particular. Wow. You couldn't do a fake because then people were like, oh, they're not real. So it was to the point where my mum always used to say, whenever I wore anything, how much does that cost you? And I'd say, oh, 40 quid for a T-shirt. I can knock that up in five minutes. And that was, in a way, my mum became my collaborator because my dad stopped her from being who she was. You know, and she made things for other people, so she was always making people's wedding dresses, curtains. Mm. She was, my mum never stopped. Where did I get it from? <laughs> just, just always working. How amazing for you to be friends of your heroes. You talked about, you know, having dinner with David Bowie and then Vivian Westwood's your friend and, you know, Andy Warhol you actually had connections with. Can we talk about that? How did that come well, about? Warhol, and I was around the time of Warhol and Basquiat, so I knew both of them. Not, did you? Yeah, did you not, meet Keith Haring as well? Keith was... Actually, a good friend. Keith was beautiful and Keith was hilarious. Keith was a really good friend and he was funny. And in fact, I was horrified when I saw the Warhol diaries because he slags me off in them. But four times he slags me off. But he was really mean to Keith. I was like, oh my God. He was like saying Keith was pushy and desperate and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, I don't remember him being like that. I just remember Keith being, he was hilarious. He used to have all these beautiful Puerto Rican boys around him on skateboards. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you what they did, but, you know, he was just beautiful. He was such a nice guy. I never got that vibe off him. But I think, you know... How did you meet him? How did you meet... Nightclubs. Just, you know, being in a nightclub, being at Area or um, the Palladium. You know, I kind of hit New York really at that time when Basquiat was happening. You know, I had a 24th birthday party, which was... We started in someone's house and we went to the Palladium. We ended up in an area and we had breakfast in bed. Of course, no one ate anything. (laughs) (laughs) Ecstasy in bed. But I remember like, you know, sitting on a bed with Matt Dillon. And I'd actually said in an interview that I wanted to be reincarnated as underwear. And then I had to sit and face him when it was so embarrassing. And I was like... Had he read the interview? Did he know? I mean, he knew. And I was like, sorry, but you are beautiful. (laughs) must be really boring to hear this but you know it is a fact you know off your head on ecstasy telling people you know whatever and you know Basquiat used to always borrow money off me because I always used to carry cash because I had no credit cards so I always had the old scores like Aretha Franklin I had like lots of cash in my pocket she had a bag didn't she <laughs> yeah. on the piano and she'd only when it's filled with cash then she would play Basically. yeah and I used to give him money and uh, and he used to say to me oh come and get a picture and I never did because <gasps> I just was never I don't know. It was like, you know, I regret it. I regret not being nice as Randy Warhol. I might have got a painting off him as well. <laughs> didn't, didn't he photograph you? He didn't, no. Oh, uh, No, he did. didn't. It there was like, definitely... oh, no, I, he took photos of me in clubs. Yeah. And I took photos of him as well, which I have. And I've got, a, I've got like this box of photos. I took, I remember one night in area, because I've just written it in a song. I was in area and he came up and he was like, can I take your picture? And I used to carry this little instamatic. And I was like, yeah, if I can take yours. I took a couple of pictures of him and they're brilliant. I don't know if they're worth anything, but... I used to take photos everywhere. You know, everywhere I went, I'd take photos of people. I took a photo of, 
Marilyn and Diana Ross in Atlantic City, which Marilyn made me sell to the New York Times. And that's where she stopped speaking to him after that. Even though it was an amazing photo, but she felt like, I think she felt a bit betrayed. So she was like, no, giving photos to the press. But that was like the 80s. It was like, you just... Mm. How did photos. you know to take photos? How did you know that that was something? Well, did I knew you see that yourself I was, as a photographer? I knew that I was like around amazing things. I was going to really... Re I mean, I wish I'd collected more. Because I definitely, like, I, a couple of years ago, I threw out all these fucking things that were really, like, valuable. And I thought, why did I throw them away? Like what? Like what? Like makeup boxes, like these old wooden makeup boxes that were, like, I'd had for years that obviously now would be, like, museum pieces. But I didn't think. Because you don't think, oh, yeah, in a few years' time, I'll be talking about my career. And I'll be looking back or not looking back. But I feel like I've gone sort of full circle in the sense of, like, the way that I... I have this kind of insane need to create things. And it's uh, humorous. The humour is a big part of it. But the songwriting thing is really the thing that's gone insane, like where I just go, oh, I can write about anything I want. I can write about meeting you. I can, you know, I'll think of some, you know, I'll think of an angle. I'll think of something that you, you said, or I think, oh, that's an interesting line. I did it the other night at the South Bank. You know, I was talking about how simple songwriting is and in essence, you know, mm. obviously you've got to have something to sing about. It's not just it's saying words, obviously. I didn't mean to say it. I meant that once you find something to say, you'll find a way to sing it, you know, and somebody went, write a song called House of Blues, which wasn't particularly interesting, but I did it in the spur and I was like, oh yeah, it could be this. But wow. I find a lot of people... Um, get intimidated by the process. And when I work with young artists, I always try to explain to them, just write, think about what you want to say, what you want to write, what you write about. Obviously, if you write about a boyfriend and they've upset you, whatever, that's easy. Do you know what I mean? You go into, you know, you go into it in a different way, you know. Um, my partner's a pothead, so I'm like, he's a leading force in the self-help business. <laughs> he's a happiness coach, but you just can't teach this. You know, that kind of thing of, like, when somebody has a certain type of sense of humour. You know, different people... I write about what's going on in my life. I write about my manager's marriage or... So it's all, know, all autobiographical now? Always a reflection. Right. But I, I'm, not, I'm not frightened to completely change subjects in the middle of a song. So I was working on something the other day um, and I started writing about um, these kids in Africa that... I, there's a girl called Beverly Ditsy who's this activist. I read an interview where she said when she was like a teenager, she was wearing all that boy stuff and boy George badges. And I was like, Africa. Wow. I've never been to Africa, obviously. I never get invited there, but I just was amazed to find out that these kids were doing that in Africa. And they mm. were like wearing, you know, clothes like me and listening to the music. And that's amazing. And I wrote this song called Rainbow in the Dark, like this idea that you can be someone's rainbow in the dark and never meet them. And I was ch chatting to her. So I started writing about, you know, I and I, my very own creation about these kids in Africa, like how they invented themselves in an environment where it was a lot more hostile than what I was going through. Because, you know, I think when you're 19, you're kind of oblivious to how people see you. Mm. And you kind of enjoy getting annoying people. Mm. It doesn't bother you. As long as I don't get physical, I'm happy if you want to be uptight about it. But, you know, I understand there's a contradiction because part of you needs the, you know, needs people to give a shit. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. But you don't really want to ever it come to, you know, aggression or 
hostility and it's always good to talk to people and you know because you understand you start to understand as you get older that the most interesting person in the room isn't necessarily the one in drag or the one mm. that looks like they got a, a, an expensive handbag it's just the most unassuming person mm. you end up in the corner with these amazing people you know do you find creating art because we're currently surrounded by loads of your artworks do you feel like that somehow unlocks your creativity like so that you can just feel more relaxed like makes it less precious or something is it a feeding because system because it seems like you've got so many different ideas going on and it's almost like quite equal like that there's no hierarchy here it's like there's all these ideas therefore it's just like let it all pour out i think that yeah getting out of your own way hey hey get out of your own way is a real thing for me also, do it now. That's another one I use a lot. Do it now because, you know, I can procrastinate. And actually, um, it's good to see things through. Even if you're writing a song, even if it ends up being a rubbish song or you don't think it's one of your best songs, see it through. And I think I've got better at going back to things now. So I'll go back to something, whereas I would have dismissed it instantly if it wasn't mm. working straight away. And the same with painting. So it's really just... I think imagination is the thing that excites me. I think a few years ago, I read this whole thing about imagination, how important it is and how we don't really use it enough. And we stay in these kind of weird narratives about ourselves or other people or what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. And I think at a certain point, I started to really think about imagination and how limitless it is and how I sometimes get in my own way. And so anything becomes cardboard, you know, gold leaf in cardboard. Can you get away with selling a piece of cardboard? I don't know, it doesn't matter because do it. You know, some things are a photostat. This is a photostat. I've got an actual painting of this. Like, a bit, this is Sinead. Oh, wow. Nothing compares to you. The actual big one is... Well, descri describe it then for people listening. Well, it's basically Sinead as a kind of alien icon. And uh, she's got this little baby and she's got the bald head and she's a saint because she really was a saint, wasn't she really? Mm. And it's just, you know, there's something really simple and sad about it. There's actually a big painting of this that's really beautiful. And but also it has your motif of a scar. <clears throat> yeah. Because I heard scar, that there's, there's this idea of who the is, scar Who man. is scar man? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, scar man is everyone who's scarred. I mean, everyone's scarred in some way, aren't they? It's like everyone's got those... Some people it's more obvious. Like some people you meet and it's like, oh my God, you know, must you wear your scar so blatantly? And then there's other people like... You think, all right, so you get to know them. Then, the, you know, in an intimate moment or after a drink, suddenly that scar gets shown. And I think one of the things about my life is there's so many people in my life that are damaged, scarred. And yet, you know, I've managed to stay friends with a lot of those people. You know, it, it, the friendship kind of evolves and changes. And, you know, I don't tend to be around people now who are negative and I, I don't and that sounds really cliched and I don't mean it to but you know there's certain people I think I just you know if I'm going for a quiet dinner I'm definitely not inviting you mm. <laughs> yeah like positivity are. is actually a really creative force in a way <clears throat> not like or just like not in a to have way, fun in, you know yeah, like yeah. not to you know because you know not to not force but just yeah like easy I mean I think you know people don't communicate very much. It's, it's interesting, you know, there's a lot of noise, but people don't actually really say anything that matters a lot of the time. And you think, even people that you're close to, you know, even significant enough, sometimes there's a, there's a kind of weird barrier between people. And um, maybe that's partly to do with fame as well. I definitely do come home sometimes and think, I talk too much tonight. 
And I've definitely become better at listening and asking people what they're up to and actually waiting for them to answer because... Yeah, I definitely do that a lot where I say, right, I'm going to go out tonight and I'm actually going to be interested in other people. I'm not just going to talk about what I've been doing because <laughs> there is that tendency to talk about. And also when you do, you sound like you're explaining yourself and you sound like you're almost embarrassed by what you're doing. It's like People often say to me, what do you do now? And I say, everything. Like everything you can think of, I do all of it. Cook, make art, you know, make clothes, have sex, you know, go walking. I mean, I'm so involved in what I do and it's funny, but... You do get embarrassed sometimes because people don't see you on the TV or hear you on the radio. They think you're sleeping. Mm. And actually, I do more now than I've ever done. You know, I've got... I'm doing the panto right now. I'm going to America to do Moulin Rouge, um, which I'm trying to learn at the moment, and it's a lot, you know. But I do this thing now where I used to... When I'm learning something, I just go, you can do this. You can totally do this. You've got this. Instead of going, no, so... I've definitely got better at not sort of taking my insecurities everywhere and making them so obvious. Mm. I think, especially when you meet new groups of people, you're like, well, they don't need to know this. They don't need to know what, you know. I take the view, I am who I am right now. Mm. Whoever I am, whatever I look like, this is who I am right now. But you've also had this real, like evolution because you had the kind of culture club huge start but then you became like a superstar dj which was when i first met you and then you've kind of evolved into artist into like you did taboo you desperate know, about your to be friend. cool <laughs> what i like about it you is like it, cool. so, it's not, no, but you're always pushing things yeah. forward and reinventing it's, it's never like one thing it's like i will say though reinventing i think is about how you think i think the most important reinvention is your thinking and that definitely for me has been the biggest change in me in the last 10 years, in the last three years. I practiced this thing called The Free Principles, which was invented by this guy called Sidney Banks. It was a welder that had an epiphany about the way we use our minds. He was a welder? It was a welder that had an epiphany, which I love. It sounds like a Morrissey song. Yeah. He was a welder. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Might turn so into So I started, <laughs> could do, yeah. And I started to practice this thing. And then I got a bit of, I, I did some sessions with a, a lady called Liliana. And she basically you know, just kind of pointed out some of the ways I use my mind, you know, about who thinks this about me and what they've done. And what you learn is to put space in what you might say back. So it's like, you might think something, but it definitely doesn't always need to be said. You know, people think, oh, you should be honest, but actually sometimes honesty isn't helpful. You know, sometimes actually shutting up is better. You know, I think when you're... when Because I think we have this instinct all of us that this kind of inbuilt instinct to be fucking amazing when something important happens like losing my mum was a moment where i was like who the fuck are you who are you you've become <laughs> who's this person you know because i fully expected to burn the house down run through the streets and you know i was expecting it to be a big fucking hideous painful drama and it was but i was able to to maintain sanity and i was like who are you and that person's there a lot. That person's a lot. You know, when you care about someone, that person steps in. That person doesn't go anywhere when you're not using that sort of common sense. It's always there. So it's, I suppose, a bit like the sort of clouds and the sun. The sun's always there if there's a cloud. Mm. It's just not seen. Mm. And so your common sense is always there and that ability to go, actually, I don't need to do this and I don't need to scream at my partner and I don't need to do what he thinks I'm going to do because he yawn. Where's that getting us? Do you know what I mean? When you suddenly realise that... Well, first of all, I think the big thing is that you can't change someone else. 
you just can't. It doesn't matter how hard you try. <laughs> and trust me, I've tried. It's like you have to change yourself mm. or remove yourself from that partnership or wow. friendship or mm, whatever so it may true. be. But you can always make it work if you're tolerant and if you can breathe before you say something and think, actually, do I want to think this? Actually, no. Actually, I don't think it. And even when people say, hey, but you must have been annoyed. They go, actually, do you know what? I'm not. Mm. <laughs> I mean, good example, John Moss, my ex-partner, sued me. It's still going on. It's a nightmare. But I've chosen to have a kind of very different experience with it. I've chosen to go, actually, I don't hate you. And I don't. Mm. I don't know why. I just don't. I've mm. just made the decision that that isn't a road I want to go down. And so you pointed to a painting then that you've made of this experience. Yeah, I've done this, this kind of comical painting. It's called the Joan Moist Fund. Because, you know, obviously, um, I was getting sued by him and I thought I'd do something funny. So it's like me, different versions of me kind of poking out from behind John. And, you know... Does this help? <laughs> does this sort of making art help you work out I think it all makes these you complicated laugh emotions? You just think okay. it is, there is an aspect of it that is so silly and, and it's about miscommunication. When you start to realise the big stuff is just drama and actually the real issue is the lack of being able to communicate with someone and go, right, this is what I feel and this is what you did or this is what I did and do you take any responsibility for that or are you just going to be angry and bring in lawyers and the only people that win in that situation are the lawyers. Yeah. And you think there's so much more we could have done with that moment. And so, and I'm not sitting there saying, oh, I acted really well the whole time. No, I lost my temper a lot. But in the aftermath of it, you know, I need to resolve it and that's what I'm doing. And it will be resolved at a point I'll be able to move on. But I'm actually moved on now. Mm. So I'm not waiting to be happy, mm. you know, and I think that's the difference. Like when I'm getting ready to go on stage, I enjoy it. I don't get vexed. I used to get really vexed. Now I'm like, getting ready is great. Getting my makeup on is great. Why would you get vexed? And why though? Well, because you know you're worrying about the outcome. Will I sing in tune? Will I be any good? What will the crowd be like? And actually, you start to realise the crowd's always great. <laughs> if you're confident and you're loving and beautiful and open, there's never a bad show. And That's also nice. learning to also communicate with the band because singers tend to go on stage and make it all about themselves and hate everyone else on stage because they're not looking at them and not giving them any attention. Mm. And you realise, well, you're running it, so you've got to go over to them. You've got to make them feel involved because right. they think they have to leave you alone. So hold on a minute, go over to Roy, you know, talk about him, go over to this one, get involved. And suddenly your experience on the stage is night and day different. You know, because you, in a band, you can't... It's not like they're session musicians and they should read your mind and know what to do. Because even session musicians are, like, nervous or we're allowed to sing loud or... You know, and I think, you know, I've always been a very generous performer. I don't care if someone could do something better than me because it's only going to be different to what I do. And you should never suppress anyone. But actually, I found out that I was doing that to the other guys, but not deliberately. I was like, they don't see me and mm. they don't take notice of what I'm doing and... Actually, when I started to realise, oh, I can do it. <laughs> so it was like, once I realised it, it was so simple. And I thought, how long has it taken me to get this? <sighs> and that's the thing about the free principles. It gets you to this place where you go, oh, my God, I've been overthinking this so badly. And actually, there was always another way of looking at things. And usually a lot simpler than the way you normally look at it. 
you know what I mean? Like, there's always, you know, like taking things personally or, you know, just... So what yeah. does the three degrees do then? So if you receive... Mind, in- thought and consciousness. So, so it's taking a beat. You receive the information, you go, okay, this is something... Well, you know, if I look back, you know, what, what's interesting about writing this book is that I look back and thought, well, I don't necessarily feel the same way that I did about those things now. I and mean, maybe they didn't happen the way I thought they did. Maybe I was just a fucking nightmare. And I was seeing it from the perspective of where I was, which is what was happening. So looking back, it's quite interesting. Some things don't change where I was born, our older, you know, our older and all that stuff. But to a certain extent, I mean, even being Russell Tovey, you, me, George O'Dowd, all of us, that name was given to us by our parents. Doesn't mean that's who we are. We've just taken on that identity and we've done, you know, different jobs with it. Everyone, you know, your parents might look at me and go, oh my God, that wasn't what I wanted. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But you're also the sort of, you are the sum of their parts as well. You can't... I'm very like my mum and dad. Like, I'm so like my dad. It's, like, terrifying. Like, I can be so much my father. And I went out of my way to be so different to my dad. But actually, in the end, I was the one that's most like him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, even sometimes when I see myself in makeup and I go, I look like my dad in drag. It's so weird because... I've become a bit more of a bloke as I've got older, so I... You know, I, I, I react like my mum to things, and I've actually started saying in my head, shut up, mum, and I told her the other day, <laughs> and I said, I, I'm so frustrated with you because I have this quick kind of, like, panic. My mum's always flappy. Something happens, she goes, oh, my God, oh, no, what are you going to do? And she goes, like, full drama. But and now, like, and I'm like, shut up, But it's up, repetition mom. like a record. You know, repetition is responsible for a lot, you know, because you, you know, I was doing a video yesterday, and... Over and over, you're playing the video, and everyone in the room's like, ah, oh, it's so catchy. I'm like, yeah, you've heard it like 60 times. <laughs> but it is catchy. Yeah, yeah. It's catchy anyway. But, you know, it's like that thing of like, you know, it's all about access. Same with art. You know, there's loads of amazing people out there. And I just think, wow, you know, sometimes you do look at things and think, oh, what's the point? Mm. But you can always find some other way of doing it, you know. And, you know, it's whereas I used to not look at things, now I look at things. I'm not like shy about referencing something whether it's musical or artistic because you know there's a lot of stuff that I do it's very like Grayson he's a big influence on me and I've known him for a long time love Grayson and Grayson it's like but there's something about his way of drawing that's a bit posher than mine there's something about him that's just very him and then I do it and it's like you know it's punky and it's (laughs) distorted and but it is the same process. But, you know, I think it's good because I think you should let the things you love influence you. Well, let's you talk about the actual paintings then. So you first started, when you first started doing paintings and drawings, were self-portraits. No, mostly I used to do, like, Bowie, Pops Up, Mark Bolan, you know. I so used like to do fan art in some Portraits. Ways. I mean, right. I still do portraits. They're faces, you know. I'm very interested in the face. You know, when I do two bodies, they're, like, pretty distorted. I have, like, arms that are bigger on one side. And because mostly it started off as a mistake, and I was like, actually, it really works, though. Mm. You know, sometimes you do something, you go, actually, I don't know why that works. And that is really the bottom line. Does it work or doesn't it? You like it? imperfections as well. 1,000%. You know, obviously, that's... I don't, I don't do many nudes, but that, to me, is like, you know, punky what, nude. What are, we, what are we looking at now? We're looking at... Uh, torso of a naked man with a very big penis big really big he's big yeah and he's got red and he's pubes. uncut <laughs> uncut with red pubes and he's got like kind of cool model hair he's got punk rock hair rob's, rob's putting his glasses on for <laughs> I this i don't think it's red i thought it was pink <laughs> no it's kind of orangey it's kind of like a punk because you don't really see punky guys you do now sort of yeah then when i did that you didn't really ever see punky boys naked right, right. it was always like you know 
models. So I like the idea of like punks, you know, because I used to love punks and always wanted a punk boyfriend. What, so what's your studio practice? How often are you making work? And also when people look at these, they're, they're all bejeweled. Yeah. And I assumed before I researched that you'd stuck them on with glue, but you hand stitch no, them all. They're no, fa- I sew them on. And I also got, I've got a team now as well. So I work with people. I've got an amazing milliner I work with. Oh, wow. So all of the stuff like, like yesterday I did Jonathan Ross and he made this insane like thing for me to wear that I didn't even see till I put it on. I was like, oh my God, I was literally kind of nervous about wearing it. I was thinking, shit. <laughs> so yeah, so I have like people that I work with now and, you know, you know, using a lot of wire stuff and trying to do bigger things, you know. So I sometimes get things made off site and then I use them on the paintings. There's no rules. I run it a bit like a fashion house. And who's the, who's the artist, Boy George or George O'Dell, when you're in your studio? I think it's a mixture of the two. I think it is. I mean, I love being there on my own and just, you know, sometimes I go in there on the weekend and just, you know, things I've started go in and just like attack them, you know, and just go, oh yeah, this works and stick things on, gluing, sewing. I mean, I used to not glue, now I do glue. It depends, you know, I just feel like at the end of the day, there's something amazing that happens when you put a frame around the piece of work. Yes. You know, not the glass necessarily, but just even the little box frames. It's like putting a label into a T-shirt. And suddenly it looks like a real thing. And there's something about putting paintings in these, you know, when the galleries show them and they put them in these little frames and suddenly you go, oh my God, it really looks like a proper painting. It's like hearing a record on the radio. It's the same thing, seeing your art on a wall or someone buying it and, you know, just kind of loving it. And actually interesting, I've done a few, I've I've had two really successful shows in Denmark of all places. And, um, I sold uh, like one I did of Gaga, but no one asked me who it was. It was so interesting because I thought it really was obvious that it was her, but no one said, oh, is it this? And then I also do Madonna ones. I sold six of those and no one asked me if it was Madonna. I was like, you know, that's when they go, oh, sweet. They didn't seem to care. You know what I mean? They weren't so bothered. They knew the the Prince one. I sold a lot of the Prince one. They knew it was Prince, obviously, because it was so obvious. But yeah, I do tend to sell a lot of paintings of famous people, but I do them in a really, I mean... Boy, my Bowie, way. well, my Bowie one looks like Tintin. That's the one I've been the most successful with. I'll show you. Show us it. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But do you... Um, I've read that you have an anxiety about not training in art, but then you felt like, well, I've sold art, so I'm an artist. Yeah, it's a bit like DJing. It's the same thing when I started DJing. It was like, oh, you, you're not a DJ. 
you're a pop star. Oh, oh yeah, wow, cool. yeah. And they're huge and they're like really big glitter prints. They're really silly, but they're really sweet. And so that's like, like a print and he's in, in them sort of what, Yeah, so what I draw album? them like the same way. What I draw trousers everything. are those he's wearing there? What yeah, my motors. That, that, that's named after the designer. Right. But then I've also got a painting of Yamamoto with Bowie. That's mm. like a cartoon, which was still finishing, which is beautiful. So, you know, a lot of, obviously, Bowie and Prince, weirdly, they've been very, very useful Central. to me. You know, like How do you every, feel about selling your art and having collectors? It's a bit like applause. Like, you know, it's a bit like, yeah. you know, like, because the, the Gaga one, I thought the woman hated it. She was going, why have you put a screw in it? Why have you done this? And I was like, well, I better think quick. And I said, oh, that's representing the fact that I've got a screw loose. I said, that's why I use the screw. Next day, I was like, that lady bought the painting. And I was like, oh, I thought she hated it. Almost felt like she was dismissing it, you know. I think whenever you do anything that's like out of the rules of what people think, you know, you should be doing, because people always go, oh, he's DJing now, oh, he's doing art now. Yeah, that's like the thing. But I think I just always bring a lot of joy to what I do. I kind of get excited about what I do. I think there's a lot of humour in what I do. And I think it just, you know, I've had to learn to believe in myself. That sounds really corny, but just not, I don't think I'm cocky. But I'm definitely more confident, you know, than I used to be. Much more like kind of, you know, because I sort of get what I said earlier. I am who I am now. There's nothing I can do about it right in this moment. This is who I am. This is how I look. This is how I feel. And I don't know. I feel like I do definitely pursue joy more, happiness. Oh, wow. You know, every day and every way my confidence is growing. Every day and every way and you're my tapping confidence your hands. is flowing. You I use tap, tapping. Yeah. I use this thing called EFT, which... So if I get up in the morning and I... You know, and I go into, oh, you know, what I've got to do today or whatever. I just, I just don't, you know, I, when I'm doing the panto, some of the kids are like quarter my age and they're tired and they're like, you know, hangovers. And I'm like, I've, you know, I'm not in a cocky way. Just, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm glad I don't feel like It's quite that. liberating, really. And when I get tired, I go and just sit on the sofa and watch rubbish TV and I just sit there and enjoy doing nothing but... When I'm working, I'm just, yeah, I love it. I've just really... And I'm around a lot of creative, beautiful people. You know, it's sort of amazing to to be there at this point and, you know, share that space with. Well, you sound like you're very present. Sorry to make you go back to the past, but I was thinking a lot about the strength of image-making in terms of your image and how those photo- photographs, when you look back at that whole decade, really, even when you're DJing, like, you have such an incredible way of creating images mm. uh, with your body. And also Lee Bowery had that too. And when you look back at images of both of you and at him, like, what extraordinary legacy and the way it's still so relevant now. Do you, do you Can you work out why that was? Is it just because you were a product of post-punk and all of this stuff? Like, I can't work it out because it's such a specific era and it's so iconic i think it's just some of it's just playing around what's there like and just pushing it a bit like if i go back to before i was famous you know what i was wearing i've lived in squats you know stepped on people's living room floors did the cleaning and i would start getting ready at four o'clock and it was just all about getting ready and it was like there was nothing else to do we had the doll we were government was giving us 14 quid a week it was which was a fortune then for doing nothing and we pursued our artistic endeavours. But I say like 17 to 21, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I fell into music because I was fully intended to be a makeup artist or go to fashion college or whatever. And then um, I fell into music because, you know, I got into a band and they fired me and I, wanted, I was so angry. I wanted to start my own band and it was all a bit like, you know, immature. But it turned into this thing because... It was meant to be. It's like, 
I feel like I always fell into these things, but they were meant to be. I think, mm. you know, people, people believe you if you believe yourself. I think it's as simple as that. You know, if somebody, like, asks you why you do something and you can explain it, you know, honestly, and I think people are like, oh, that's interesting. Because sometimes people look at a piece of work and they don't know what it is, and I say, well, this is what it means to me, and this is what... You tell I them how think- to see it. Yeah, this is what I was thinking about, yeah. and... So a lot of it is humour, you know. I love the idea of getting ready, though. It's like we just spent the whole day getting ready, so it's almost like immersing yourself and committing yourself These to creativity. These are all about getting ready. It's so <laughs> funny because I start and I go, oh, it's really simple, right? Okay, mm. And then I start painting it and then I start beading it and then I start sticking things on. Suddenly it's like got a personality. Mm. And then I give it a name. Like there's a thing in the loo at work that I've called Space Matador because it reminds me of someone that might have worked on a club in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. And it's this ridiculous kind of, you know, almost like an alien with these sort of these wire horns. With a, it's a, the face is actually perspex. So it's a drawing that I made in, get made in perspex and I stuck it on and then did the body around it. And it's just got a beautiful jacket and it's very fashion. So I might see a John Galliano shoot and I go, oh, I'm going to definitely do a painting like that. And oh, wow. want it to come off the, you know, like sort of that idea of like things coming off the page and coming out of the wall and, you know, just... Also, that kind of um, sort of excess of couture that's like three seconds. Someone's worked on a dress for 14 weeks mm. and comes on the catwalk and then goes off to wherever it goes off to and you never see it again. And I suppose in a way, it's kind of, it's like brutal. I love that. I love the things that are unnecessary. Like, like, I love the idea of like beading the pockets of a pair of trousers or... That nobody's going to see, only your Yeah, but you know, you go, well, why is it only for other people? You know, I've got this friend mm. called Pinky Tessa Braithwaite. Do you know who she is? No. She's amazing. Google her. She's been around for years, but she's this unbelievable. She was like Lucille Ball on crack. She wears this amazing vintage stuff. Oh, I have seen her. Yeah. She goes and down the Wolseley all the what's time. What's so funny about Teresa? Because she's a real self-promoter. But if anyone asks for a picture, she goes, no. <laughs> she's like, no. And I'm like, I love that because she's saying to them, I'm not doing it for you. I'm not here to entertain you. It's different because I've chosen to entertain, so I never say no. I always say yeah, yes, even yeah. even if I'm looking like a tramp. I'm always like, yeah, sure, as long as you don't mind this version. You know, <laughs> actually, I've discovered to my pleasure that actually cutting out the anxiety around being outside and in public. You know, one of the things about going on the jungle, it exposed me in a way that I never planned to be exposed. So I was like. <laughs> But it was really a relief when I came out because like, people were just like, it's like they saw me. You know, whereas the sort of media were quite bitchy and calling me all this, that and the other, people actually in the street were like, oh, you were great, you were so funny, loved you. You're the only one that told the truth, you know, you were honest. And taxi drivers, because I spend a lot of time in taxis, so, you know, they tell you about what's what. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was amazing. Like, you were so funny. And I was like, oh, I said, after four days, I just couldn't keep it up. I just couldn't pretend anymore. I had to just let it out, you know. And it was a really good thing for me because, you know, it it sort of helped me to get more over myself. And actually, weirdly, made me more sort of like wanting to be glamorous as well. Like, actually, you know, because I went for a period a few years back where I hated getting ready. I would be like a grump. Mm. And... In the last four or five years, I was just like, ah, oh, do my face. <laughs> this is so good, though. You're you know, in such a face. good place. Like, you know, because it's like, it's just fun. And, you know, you go out and, you know, people are very sweet, actually. I, I find people are very kind to me. 
And they always have been, even when I was a Grinch. Mm. People have always been nice to me. I've always been like, why are people nice to me? You know what I mean? I've always had this weird thing about... But I think it's that British thing of not being able to take a compliment, not being able to be mm. too full of yourself. And when people say nice things, you go, oh, you know, I, you know, I don't know what to say. I think I've definitely got more gracious about saying thank you when someone says something nice. And but not also you're, you're loving yourself more and therefore you can then accept love probably. Because it sounds like you're, you're, you've really worked on yourself. Oh, and still do, you know. And as I say, you know, I do, uh, I meditate, I do affirmations. I talk to myself a lot. I'm always having a word with myself. I've, I've always known myself to be someone that if I'm going into a tricky situation, you know, I need to say, right, you, you got this. You totally got this. You can do it. No reason. Being nervous isn't going to help you, right? So, you know, it's it's just giving yourself a roadblock in your thinking. Tapping mm. is amazing because you do it and you feel like, feel like an idiot <laughs> doing it, you know. And then half an hour later or an hour later, you've done something, you go, ah, I didn't do what I always do, you know, and mm. it's sort of, it's quite fun to have the opportunity to walk into a room, like when I went to New York to, you know, meet the Moulin Rouge people and to do a fitting and to go, right, I don't need to bring that person with me. Leave that person there. You know, and the more you can leave that person there, the better things are. You know, that you start to realise there's nothing really much to do except think about things in a different way because... Really, everything is a thought concept. Every single thing that we do, everything we love, it's all about the way we think. Do you go to museums often or galleries? Because I saw that you did an article in Freeze, which was about Freeze two years ago, and you highlighted the works that you spotted. The, so you included people we've interviewed, like Amarako Barafo, yeah. Wilhelm Sassnell. We haven't interviewed him, but there was that really mad photo of that um, stowaway where it's like yeah, from amazing, a plane, that plane falling thing. out yeah, and then there was one of Maureen Paley's artists who's yeah. at East London Gallery yeah. um, so all these different artists in contemporary art so do you go to Freeze and do you go I to do. museums I do I go and... to uh, you know I've got friends that will tell me what's on so I've always got great friends that say what are you doing Sunday let's go to the gallery Tiny in the park something. the Serpentine. Serpentine yeah the Serpentine let's go here let's go to the National I've just done a thing for the National Portrait Gallery Justice Lee actually I had this whole thing, because I'm doing... Because normally when I do Lee, I have to take the beard off. That's I'm doing Captain Hook. Yeah. So I was like, I can't do the thing. But anyway, we found a way of doing it. It was genius. So I wore the silver, like... I've got it out there, I wore the hoodie thing, but I held it up in front of my mouth with a white glove, so like, as if I was taking it off. And then we did another one with white gloves, and it was really fun. It was like... Because at first I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this. And then I was like, I found a way. And then I wore this, like, puffball head thing that I've got, which is just... You can't see anything. But wow. weirdly... You can still see it's me. <laughs> so you've got one eye through and it's like... Yeah, I feel like... We talked about Lee briefly earlier. I mean, I think Lee was so brazen. I think he was just such a breath of fresh air when he arrived and when he started to really start to be taken notice. People started to take notice of Lee. I remember one night being at the fridge, there was this there was this period of where in gay culture where... All these Muslim women were wearing jewellery around their necks, all these beads. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, like yeah, chokers yeah. or it was like... A, no, it was just beautiful, like, beads, just loads of these colourful beads, all muscly, but it was a thing. Yeah. And everyone was in shorts and everyone had amazing bodies and it was just, like, torture. That was, like, the era of trade, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but you got, like no, that. it was, like, the daisy chain trade. It was mm. that kind of area. I remember that, yeah. Anyway, I remember... Because I was always overdressed. So I was always in a hat and jacket and whatever. I remember seeing Lee at the Daisy Chain in basically naked with like this merkin on push-up bra on this puffball head thing and these boots. 
and he had his bum out, and he actually was really tall. He had great legs, Lee. And I remember thinking, actually, he's kind of sexy. You know, he's kind of confident, and there's something about him that is very sexy. But just seeing him in the sea of all this perfection, mm. and Lee just like, you know, with belly, you know, it was kind of it was it was kind of inspiring in a way. I mean, did he not... ever introduce you to Freud when he, you know, Lucian Freud was painting? No, him, Christine, who's done some more makeup was painted by Freud and her sister Nicola was also painted by Freud. They fought together. Wow. And actually, I, I can say this now because he's gone, but <laughs> I'm getting into trouble. Oh she said that in the painting, Christine's head's cut off and she said it's because she wouldn't sleep with him. <gasps> That's probably not true. That's no, allegedly. I don't oh, know. he's getting dead though, isn't he? It's so. true. But yeah, no, so there's, you see Nicola and there's a dog and then you see Christine and she's got, <laughs> she's got a red cut off. Oh, oh my God. God, punishment. There oh is God. another one, I think, where they're in it, but that particular painting, she said that particular week she'd pissed him off or something. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, those paintings of Lee are just insane. Same. I mean, even, you know, the fact that he's not wearing his usual outfits, but he just looks Completely so, naked and he's there. It's really present. inspiring yeah, painting. I mean, it's just really clever. I understand that, like, you know, there's different types of art. There's art that's about detail and perfection. And I can look at that and be, oh, that's amazing. But I would never think of doing it. It would take too long. I'd just be like, no, I can't. I can't. But at the same time, I'm happy to bead something for, like, six months and keep going and, you know, keep, you know. I've got this amazing painting of Palmer Ham, who's the, you know, the DJ. Amazing. Oh, my God. He's an artist. Your okay. love. Your we need Palmer Ham. Your love. Palmer Watch this space. No, no, I'm a vegetarian, gonna, no, no. but hey, yeah, hey, we I've should definitely. I've got to show you. <laughs> Amazing. He's, he's an artist and very interesting. Um, oh, my God. I've seen his hands. Oh, I don't know Palmer Ham. He's got his knickers down. Obviously, it's late at night, I think. Adorable. Wow, we love Palmer Ham. Um, and very sweet. Um, Palmer Ham. Get in there, Ross. <laughs> wait, wait. He's hot. I was about him. I really liked him. I met him. I don't normally fancy him. Put your glasses on, Rob. But I was like, I'm okay. <laughs> Gotta see more of Palmer Ham. I'm fine. And then they get they do all this art mad stuff. Oh, oh wow. wow! Oh wow! This is great. That's cool. wild. I mean, he's really like. Wait. So talking about museums and stuff. So so did you when you grew up? Do you, did you do you have any memories of wow. um like going to museums or or are there shows that you've seen that you've loved? Or? I think when I was a kid, I was intimidated by art for a long time. You know, I felt very outside of it. But I remember sort of loving Andy Warhol, like loving that. And then, of course, even when I met Andy Warhol, I was really impressed, but I pretended not to be. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, proper, like, cares. Mandy Warhol. I used to call him Mandy Warhol. Marilyn used to go, Mandy Schwarzschwag. You know, we used to just come up with these lights like, sitting there and go, Shmandy Warhol. It was hilarious. <laughs> Me and Marilyn, like, just used to... And Marilyn, obviously, he hated Marilyn, so he was like... He was like... Oh. Why did he hate Marilyn? Because Marilyn was rude. Marilyn was rude. And Marilyn was, like, beautiful and indifferent and just couldn't care less. That's <laughs> just like... He'd be like, oh, she's so boring. Marilyn used to get everyone was boring, but that was the sort of... That was the starting point, you know, like, oh, boring, you know. <laughs> boring, just so impressed, you know. And, but then if he was in love with someone, like, if he was in love with someone, he'd drive me insane to call them. You call them, because they'll speak to you, because you're boy George, like... <laughs> Diana Ross, you know, Keith Richard, whoever. It was like, you call them. And Gemini's, we don't like calling people. It's like, let's just wait for them to call us. So it's funny, yeah, but I think, you know, I think if I go back and regret anything, it's just not having more fun with it. That's the only thing I would say. Like, I just could have been so much more fun. I could have had more paintings. I could have, you know, just 
It's like, yeah, you know, just like, it's that presence thing. It's like meeting Frank Sinatra and being a little bit indifferent and taking a drag queen with me because I thought it was controversial. <laughs> what was he like? He was amazing, but it was brief, you know. But the thing is, yeah. I ended up writing a lyric about it. You step up to shake his hand, you're just a man and he's Frank Sinatra. You know, because actually at the time, I was like, oh my God, it's Frank Sinatra. But, you know, I was a little bit full of myself. Oh, boy, George, you know. Took my friend, um, it was called Coral Reef. And it was, there's photos, it's hilarious. And he was like, kept walking around going, good grief, it's Coral Reef. It was just so <laughs> stupid. And it was just, you know... At that time, like, it was kind of like quite controversial to take a drag queen in a fur coat and a swimming suit to the Albert Hall to see Frank Sinatra. It's quite funny. And she was hilarious. And he was just, yeah, sweet. It was like, you know, didn't care. Probably met loads of drag queens. He didn't give a shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was like, I remember thinking, oh, I wish I'd been more present in that moment, you know, and sort of got a photo or something, you know. Mm, Not that it what, matters, but... I want to talk about a term that I read with you, future nostalgia. What is future nostalgia? What you create in the future will be nostalgia. You know, people are only interested in nostalgia, nostalgia. Like, there's this attitude that, particularly in rock and roll, that you get to a certain point and you can't do anything else. You know, no one else can write a Christmas song. No one else can do this. And, you know, you're kind of... I feel like the music industry, it's about selecting a handful of people to be a centre of attention and everybody else has got to stay in their lane. And I think... One of the things I've always done is like, okay, pop music's going that way, I'm just going to be a DJ. Oh, I can't get played in the radio, I'm just going to make more art then, fuck you, I'll do that. Or I'm going to be a DJ, or I'm going to do both, or I'm going to act, or I'm going to be in a panto. It's quite Andy Warhol, because he did a lot of stuff, you know, like, everyone's like, don't do that, you're Andy Warhol. And he's like, fuck off, I'm 60, I'm going to be a model. You know, I mean, even... This is absolutely true. A few years ago, I said to my manager, why don't you get me some modelling work? And he started laughing. (laughs) That's it. I don't mean like supermodel, I mean like character <laughs> stuff, you know, like character modeling, you know, like for a brand. And he goes, I oh, don't be ridiculous. Then, like two weeks later, I got to you all. And I was like, see, that's what I mean. Wow. You know, it was only like one thing, but it was, you know, it was funny because it was the fact that I said, can I be a model? He was like, <laughs> you know, laughed at me. I love that though. So, Warhol's <laughs> sort of template really inspired you. And it also 100%. made you, I mean, it also made you like, feel welcome though. In I also the, love the fact that well, Warhol and Lou Reed is the other oh, one that yeah. I was obsessed with, even more than Bowie. There's that amazing interview with Lou Reed where they say, are you a homosexual or a transvestite? And he goes, sometimes. Mm, and he goes, which one? He goes, that's, what is that's it? on the internet which, a lot. Which one? He goes, on what Instagram. does it matter? Yeah. And so good. Like I always, I know that Lou Reed was a massive influence on Bowie. Everybody knows that. It was a massive, inf- a good influence on Bowie. Mm. And, you know, I met him once and it was very brief and it was fucking hilarious because I was at this gig and Lou Reed was sitting across to me with Laurie Anderson and I was like... <gasps> this was only like 10, 15 years ago. I was literally going, oh, my fucking God, I can't believe it. I'm not going to say anything because I hear he's quite tricky. And at the end of the night, he gets up to leave and this kid comes up with a camera and he goes, hey, Lou, can I take a picture? And he's trying to take his picture and obviously not doing it. And Lou Reed looks at him and he goes, "Anytime this week... <laughs> I say that all the time. Anytime this century is one of my lines, and I was like, oh my God. And then he just looked at me and went, winked at me and he walked off. And it was amazing, you know, because wow. it was like, I got that moment with someone that has massive influence on me and the way he writes, his lyrics, brilliant, Louise and Jews, but also his attitude in the 70s. Are you a homosexual? Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, what to do with your money? I buy drugs. Are you encouraging people to buy drugs? Yeah. <laughs> if you can, there's a whole interview. Wow. Honestly. Before we get to our final questions, as it is Christmas, I want to know some fun facts about do they know it's Christmas? Apparently, you were the last person to record it after coming fresh from Concord at Heathrow on an international flight. Is that true? I looked like a battered housewife. I was like shaved head. I was like, I was in between looks. I was trying to be a bit punky and I had this little weird orange and purple Mohican shaved. I was carrying poodles. I don't know why. I just thought I'd buy some fake poodles and carry them. I don't know. It was just attention seeking, but you know, kind of genius in a way. And I remember I was, I had a bottle of whiskey as well. I was drinking a lot then and I was quite tired. I'd just done a big gig in America I got a call from Bob Geldof, who I didn't know, but I knew he was Irish. I thought, he's Irish. He's obviously a good person. You know, so I talked to him. So I'm doing this thing. He was very excited about it. And he was like, you have to be there. You'll regret it if you're not. Everyone's coming. But I think he was telling everyone that everyone was coming. So we were like, oh, <laughs> it was Michael's going to be there. <laughs> Paul Young, you know, it was like all that. So I got on the flight, came back. And, um, and you flew Concord. Flew Concord. I had a Concord ticket anyway, but I, I paid for it. They didn't. Did you fly Concord a lot? <laughs> I did. Yeah, wow. like, I was like always jumping on it like it was oh, a bus. <laughs> Literally last minute because you could always get seats on it because they were so expensive. So you could always like turn up at last minute and go two seats to New York. What like, would it be for a seat to New York then? Three or four thousand at that time. Whoa, yeah, that wow. was expensive. Yeah, and what was it like the experience of going on Concord? I it was just didn't... amazing to get there so quickly. In the and morning, you arrived before it? you left. Whoa, which was insane. It was kind of, it was kind of scary, but it was insane. You always used to see insane people on the like Tony Orlando. I met on there, Dustin Hoffman. You know, there was always someone famous on there. You go, oh, look, so so. You know, it'd be funny. So you got on the plane. You had a bottle of whiskey. Yeah, came back. Went in the car to some studios in Notting Hill Gate, not knowing anything. Got there and it was like masses of media. So I was like, oh, this is major. Walked in the door. First person I saw was Simon Lamont. And that time we hated each other. <laughs> but the circumstances forced us to hug. It was like, quick, there's a camera. Hello, babe. And we, now I love him. Now I love Simon LeBond. Like, he's such a nice guy. I love him so much. I'm, like, he's my favourite Duran, which is weird. You know, him and Roger, they're very sweet. But yeah, my, Simon's my favourite. He's very nice. And But back then, we really didn't like each other. We were just, you know, it was what everyone was like. We all hated each other. But anyway, got there and literally was sang the song in two seconds, get in and do it. And it was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to sound like. And just did it. You know, they didn't even give us like two or three goes. <laughs> And that was it. You're well, done. that's future nostalgia because that song is on every Christmas. You well, must future nostalgia is more about, you know, it, 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 I've got a song called Gravel, which is on, on Spotify. And I say, I was thinking about now, not yesterday. I know yesterday pays nostalgia is a racket. Because, you know, of course, a lot of what I do is, even the work, the art is punky, it's nostalgic to a certain degree. But it's still outside of what's, normal you know or what you see everywhere and yeah i do think things are cyclical i've been joking about bringing back the new romantics but there's definitely a sort of spirit of resilience and you know kind of breaking away from you know all of the sort of more corporate side of gayness drag race which is very you know it's brilliant but it's your man watches it 
You know what I mean? It's just, what? <laughs> you saw that coming. So well, We had that with Electro Clash as well, which I was part of that whole scene in London. And I remember seeing you backstage at, well, not backstage, it was like a tiny little closet room in Nag 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 at the ghetto, the old ghetto, which yeah, is now being knocked, there. knocked down. Go... But you came down, <clears throat> yeah. I used to about... play there as the twin. I had this project That's right, the, twin, the twin, which yeah. was, I would never do now. I mean, actually, weirdly, I've been looking at some of the old tracks from that period and saying, oh, you know, maybe I'll redo this one because... Mm. There's a few things that my friend found recently. He goes, do you remember this? And I was like, oh, my God. But actually, it's really good. I'm going to redo it. But obviously, maybe maybe not as smutty as it was. I, but I, a... I really like the twin. And I also really like your collaboration with Tracy Emin, Burning Up. Amazing. That's I a dance record. It. I it's can't banging. find it. I know it's out there somewhere. It's quite vulgar. We, 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 we have it in Margate. I've, I've got it on a CD that's on the cover of some magazine. Yeah. Yeah. You mean Tracy's you can't find it, it in her archive? You can't. Well, I just looked online the other day and I couldn't see it. I was like, oh, normally oh. it's up here. You but know. you don't have like an archive of that somewhere. Somewhere. One, okay. of, my, one of my... Can you talk about how that, have it. how that song came about? Burning up because she swears a lot in it as well, doesn't she? She says, "My cunt is what we fear." That's right. You know, I mean, it's, it doesn't get any more graphic than that. She said to me you know? the other day. I told her I was interviewing you, and she said to me, "Oh, George and I thought that song was going to be like a number one hit, and then we realised it can't get played anywhere because I swore the whole way through." Do you know that she also was going to be in Culture Club? Really? Tracy Emin was going to be in Culture Club. She was going to play, be in Culture Club, but she couldn't play anything. I think she even came really? to rehearsal, early rehearsal, asked her about it because she reminded me. What? I've known Tracy since she was at 14. No way. So this oh, is funny story. Kent from Kent. Oh, I know Tracy from, Tracy from Kent. So I knew her. She used to go out with Barry with the rat. There was this guy called Barry the rat who was gorgeous. Well, he had a pet rat. He had a pet rat, a white rat. And he, <laughs> and he was really sexy. And he slept with everyone at Warren Street. Everyone, male, female, everyone was. And he went out with Tracy. So we used to see her when we went down for punk weekenders down to Margate. And I remember her really well. Years went by. She came to a like, early rehearsal for Culture Club. When I was trying to put Culture Club together as like an amazing looking band where I didn't really care if anyone could play. This was before I took it seriously. So I was like, you can play bass, you have to learn. Because you know, there were a lot of bands... Back in the punk era, there was a lot of people that picked up the bass and learned it in three weeks. Mm. So it wasn't out of question. Mm. But to start with, I only cared about how the band looked. So yeah, Tracy exactly, was yeah. involved and there were some other people involved. Anyway, it didn't work out, whatever. And she did well without us. And I did well without her. But years later, I went to a Bowie gig at the Hanover Grand. So Bowie did this private gig at the Hanover Grand and I got invited. And I was watching the show and it was so funny. And I remember his manager come up and she goes, you know every fucking single word. And I said, yeah. And tell David he missed t- lyrics on this song and that song <laughs> and that song got more wrong. And she goes, I will. So when I went backstage, he goes, oh, are you? I hear you were putting me right on the lyrics. I said, oh, you messed up Queen Bitch and all this. And <laughs> he's laughing. <laughs> and I said, I know the words, that was good. But anyway, he goes, do you know Tracy Emin? And I go... Tracy? Are you Tracy? <laughs> I didn't have a second name. I said, wow, that's amazing. You know, it was like a real moment for me. Like, wow. You know, what do you say to someone? And they go, I'm like... <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? That you've known from the past. I mean, I suppose it's like meeting my school friends, you know, because I have met a few of them and they've been, like, quite weird with me. Even though I'm exactly the same yeah. in a lot of ways, but yeah. I come with this whole yeah, other yeah, yeah. thing, yeah. you know, called fame, and you know, it's it's a it's a funny thing, but yeah, no, I mean, it's just mad what people. I think we just come from that generation that created our own. We invented ourselves yes. out of cardboard and glitter. Literally, it was like you know, I'm not fit for kind of regular employment. I knew I was never going to get a job, and when I did, it never lasted more than three weeks because. I just couldn't be talked to like I didn't matter. 
you know, so I was always rebelling against authority. And I think that that's why I was bound to work for myself. I mean, you always work for someone. There's no, there's no way around it. All art is a collaboration. You know, I really believe that. And, you know, but it's, I think there's a, there's people that do it and there's people that don't do it. And it's really about doing it, whatever it is, whatever it is, going for a walk, making your dinner, doing a painting, making an outfit, you know, whatever. It's like, you've just got to get on with it. Amazing. And it's that, do it now, mm. do it now. Don't stop, you know, and it might be rubbish. You know, somebody might laugh at it and, you know, but then it might be good for a video or, you know, so I don't, I don't, obviously I know what I've sold. So I know there's a certain thing that people like, but actually I'm always surprised by what people buy. I mean, I sold this painting two years ago and it was really, I did it as a joke in Australia, but it was, it was intentional. I did this black massive canvas that said, welcome to my spaceship. And it had like this little, this little alien, this beaded alien. Like, and I thought, I'll put it in the window because no one's going to buy it, but it will make people laugh. And it was the first thing that sold. Wow. And the woman said to me, I don't know if you're a genius or I'm just insane today because <laughs> I'm buying that. And I was like, I'm really impressed that you bought that. It's like when somebody comes up to me and they say, oh, I like a song of yours and it's something really obscure, you know, like, oh, I love this song, G.R. Josephine. And I goes, where the fuck did you hear that? <laughs> and I wrote it about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It's the most ridiculous song. And it's on this album called The Unrecoupable One Man Bandit. So it's very, like, gay. It was when I was sort of being a bit more... I've got an album called Cheaps and Beauty, which is very gay. It's when I started to use he in my songs and be less kind of, you know, conscious of singing about stuff that was actually going on and, you know, singing about boyfriends and singing like just being a bit more Bowie in the sense of, you know, you know, I love it when you shave your head and how your walk is very me. Like just, you know, like how you actually think about someone that you fancy. Mm. We're doing it in a way that can apply to everyone in a way because, you know, one of the reasons why I love Morrissey is because he writes about life in such a kind of awkward underhanded way and it's like he writes about life as it really is sometimes and not always but I just love that kind of humor if a 10-ton truck kills the both of us <laughs> how romantic can you be <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well amazing how many hats have you got George you have a collection Probably, don't you? at the moment 300. And how do you store them all? All over the place. They're like under tables. But in the boxes covers. or are they on like boxes, mannequins? Um, or? And I'm always trying to get new ones, actually. Finding someone to make these. These ones are um, uh, Child of the Jago. So it's Vivian Westwood's Oh yes. son. They sell son. them online so yeah, you can still yeah. get them. They're great. He's really talented. But not many people like hats. Like most people feel silly in a hat, but I feel more silly without a hat. When did you first start wearing hats? In the 70s. Oh, really? Yeah, when I was first dressing up, I was yeah. like, oh, put a turban on, put a hat on, everything. Have you still about... got hats from the 70s? Yeah. I and still... do you ever wear them again? Yeah. I mean, some of them are a bit small now. I mean, there's some things, you know, I don't know if it's the same for you, but you put things on, you think, I still look great in this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible, no. Yeah. You know, dungarees, yeah. I couldn't get away with them now, you know, but as much as I'd love to bring them back, you know, but... Yeah, I feel like um, like doing uh, panto. Some of the costumes are very new romantic. They've made me these amazing mm. blouses, and I'm just oh, I'm taking this home. <laughs> you know, so that was me going. Definitely going to bring back the new romantics. But I've just done a version of Small Town Boy, <gasps> which 
Actually, with, with Jimmy Somerville? Or? Yeah, I've done it. No, I've done it myself. I've just done it as a... As a I just was messing around with it because I always wow. loved it. I, I wrote about it. it in my book. I wrote about how when it first came out, I wasn't able to say how great it was because I was, you know, you know, just being Boy George and, like, everyone was competition. But I remember at the time just going, wow, this song is so amazing and mm. this video is so amazing <laughs> and... Wow, what a song. If you ever write, if you only ever write one song, that's, that's the song. That's the one to write, yeah. And then you're sort of climbing into it, going, actually, I wouldn't be able to sing this because I don't sing it in falsetto. Climbing into it, you go, oh my God, this is like, can be different. But yeah. also, your voice has, has evolved so and You haven't much. released no, no, it yet. I'll share what I've done on this. You haven't released it yet. No, 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 I'm still working on it because I've been trying to get, um, I want to try and get Napalm Deaf to play on it. Yeah. So is it a bit, are you using the Vodafone on it? Is that what it's called? Vodafone, what's that machine that Cher used on Vocoder? Vocoder. Not Vodafone, oh, that's a right. phone provider. That's a brand. All right. It's like a... Put your glasses on. Let me turn this off. I've got to turn it off there because it's... Uh, yeah. I was going to say something really mean, what, but I say did it. it. <laughs> I say it, be mean. I was going to say, wind your giraffe neck in. Oh, wow. We've actually recreated this. We recreated this. So it's not a Did sample. you have to tell him? Ask his no. permission? No. We just, no, he he'll just publishing. get PRS. He just gets everything. Ah. Oh, that's great. It's kind of, this song is so now. It's yeah, it is. You're right. Great. It's really nice. So weird I listen to this all the time. I guess everything's always now, right? In a way, mm. you know, fascinating. I love your voice so much. I mean, it's like I've used the riff from I used the riff from Faithless in it as well. I've literally just got everything in the kitchen. So nice. So good. How does the runaway turn away bit go? That riff is killer. It really is. It's yeah. just oh, it's so magic. good. It's you magic. play that with DJ. I mean, live, this will be insane. This will be like a moment. It'll have to be one of the last songs because it'll be like. It's like that New Order track as well. There's that New Order track. Well, I was thinking like, of doing that I remember, as well. it, yeah, in the Electro How Clash. How does it feel? Yeah. It went, when so you're allowed to do anything without telling yeah, the yeah, artist. Yeah, you could cover Karma You'd have to re-record it all yourself. Anyone then, can cover But then the anything. artist would get well, royalties. It's interesting because yeah. oh. if you change it dramatically, if you change it, then you can't. But these days, people seem to be less uptight about allowing things to be different. As long as you just say, look, it's his song and you keep it all of it. You know, it's, it's, you know, because you get performance when you cover something mm-hmm. and you get all the benefits that come with doing that because it's such a beautiful moment. You go, oh, obviously I'm conscious. I never want to do anything that upsets another person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've covered like Yoko Ono songs, mm. Bowie, obviously, T-Rex. Um, yeah, I love covering things. It's like I used to be a bit of a snob about it and then suddenly went, actually, when you climb into a song, sometimes a song you don't really like... And then you go, actually, this is, oh, this is, oh, this is a different feeling. And mm. playing around with the chords and just, you know, trying to, <laughs> the cliche, make it your own. <laughs> but actually, you know, the thing is that, obviously, I couldn't sing it in falsetto anyway. It's, I couldn't sing that high, but it's interesting hearing it brought down. You go, actually, it's still got a mm. sadness to it. It's yeah, it's this amazing, of, amazing song. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. It's, and, you know, it's not something I would have ever thought of covering. And I'm like, 
Maybe I should listen to myself less. That's great. It's great. Well, we're going to get into our final questions now. We've been talking yeah, for sure. so long. Thank you yeah, so yeah. much I for giving like us. I've been, I don't feel like oh, I've love been it. No, neither do I. I. And everyone listening is, is going to love this. Love. They're going to be able to escape their families over the Christmas period. Okay. And, and listen to the world of Boy George. <laughs> if you could do an art heist, you could have any artwork in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? Ooh, I would love Andy Warhol's soup can. Which oh. one? Like uh, the can, uh, tomato. Tomato soup. That'll be tomato. <laughs> <laughs> tomato. Um, Did you see the... those at the time they were made? Uh, I saw them exhibited, but yeah. I never saw them, obviously, because it was the mid seventies. So I didn't get to New York till eighty one, eighty two. Right. So that was when I got there, and obviously, um, it was. I had to get a bit more famous before I got the phone call. <laughs> Andy Warhol wants to invite you to lunch. I was like, okay, I've got to tell this story because it is funny. Yeah. So I go, so he says, you know, and Marilyn's going, we're going, we're going. I said, can I bring Marilyn? Yeah. Do you want to bring, do you, would you like us to invite anyone else? Is there anyone you know in New York or you want to meet? And I said, can you invite Quentin Chris? <gasps> and they said, yeah, 1000%. He's good. And they called back and said, he's coming. And I was like, oh my fucking God, I can't believe it. I'm so excited. <laughs> so. I'd just done a photo shoot with Avedon and it had kind of been a bit of a drama, but we'd done it. This is Avedon's Richard Avedon, the, the Richard Avedon, the amazing yeah. photographer. Why was, it, know, why was it drama, though? Oh, because we had a row and I was late and I had to go and apologise. And it was the whole, it's in the book, it's so funny. <laughs> so in the end, it was fine in the end because I sent him flowers and I was like, Richard, you know, we got, we got arrested at um, Niagara Falls. They kept us there for hours and I missed the photo shoot and I had to apologise. Anyway, whatever. So anyway, I got arrested, this... sorry, for what? Well, someone had dope on them and we got in trouble and they let us go. They let us go. You know, I burst into tears. It was like drama. But we missed this photo shoot. So I had to call Avedon and say, my press agent was like, you care, going to sue us. Rolling Stone are going to sue us. And I didn't really have any concept of that whole thing. So I rang Avedon and his assistant was really rude to me. So I said, tell him to go fuck himself. Put the phone down. She was like, you don't know what you've done. It's the worst thing ever. So anyway... <laughs> I wrote him a beautiful note the next day. I sent him a big bunch of flowers, roses, and I said, Dear Richard, money isn't everything. I'm desperate to work with you. Please don't be a Grinch. And the next day I got a pile of books. I got the most beautiful card from him saying, you made me laugh so much, I pissed myself laughing. And, and I, I said, you know what, against all the better advice, I knew that flowers would make you smile. And then we went to Miami, we did the shoot in Miami, and I, as I was coming down the path, he walked up the path of the rose. It was very sweet, uh-huh. and it was a great photo shoot, and he was just beautiful. But anyway, so I'd done this photo shoot, and I was telling Quentin and Chris the story, and I think he got the end of it, and he goes, who was the photographer, darling? And I said, Richard Avedon. And he goes, wow, you must be very energetic, all that running and chiffon. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, you know, some people won't understand that humour, but it just really made me laugh. Aww. And Quentin Chris was like the life of that lunch. It was that like Bianca Jagger, Keith Heron was there, um, uh, Rupert Everett was there. There was a kid that we met that we were hanging out with that we brought with us in a pair of shorts. Insane. Uh, yeah, and it was like Bianca, Marilyn was there, I was there. It was kind of funny, you know, it was like, but again, note to self, I should have been a bit more like, you know, I don't know what I should have been, but I was very like, I was wearing sunglasses at lunch. Who wears sunglasses at lunch? I'll never do that now. Sitting there with a pair of sunglasses on a scarf at lunch, right? My head like... <laughs> so funny. Anyway, move on to what you were saying. So you got the soup can, tomato soup can. <laughs> soup can, because it's so iconic. You know, or a Monroe, Marilyn. Yeah, cool. Or to have one of me by 
Andy Warhol, but yeah, just Al Warhol. But he did Warhol. make a pr- one of you then. No, no, they so. did me. I, I was definitely was on the cover of Interview, but it was, it was later. It was after. I think it was after he died. So, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. He took pictures of you in nightclub. For yeah, sure. and I've I was that. also any other art. I mean, obviously, I'd love a Banksy. <laughs> would you? Yeah, I think it's very funny. Which one would you want? I don't know, like. I like the ones on the street. I like that like, the phone boxes. I'd love one of those. Like the mangled phone box is hilarious because of the audacity of it. And I also love the flower that goes up the wall. It's like the Yolanda on the street. To me, that you know, yeah. the stuff that's really humorous and simple is the stuff I love. You know, yeah. just yeah, I'd love to him to come and paint on my house. It'd be hilarious. Humor is important to you, isn't it, in art? Well, I think because there was such snobbery in art for years, and working class people were made to feel like stupid if they didn't like something or they didn't get it but I also loved as a kid even like sort of the bricks and you know the banana and all those things I love them because I get why they do them because it makes people annoyed and and you know and, and if you annoy people they're going to take notice you know oh that's not art and it's hilarious and you know I've shown relatives of mine things like oh it's very colourful <laughs> that's the review and you're like it's okay very colourful <laughs> you know Oh, sorry. how'd you do that? You know, just not understanding it, you know. And then other people just go, oh, can I have one? You know, and it's, you know, it's, it's amazing, you know. What is your favourite colour? Bright orange. Yes. I love props. Mine too, we're matched. Punk, punk orange, I love anything <clears throat> orange. I love, I lose a lot of orange in my paintings. Yeah. Always orange. And, you know, it's not a colour everyone loves, but I just really love it. The more fluorescent, the better. Yeah. What is the paint you use? Acrylic. Is it straight from the tube or do you mix it? Sometimes mix it, sometimes add like medium, sometimes like water it down, you know, and do more of a watercolory type thing on like paper sometimes, you know, like watering it down and just kind of getting that slight uh like a delay in the in the line which is nice you know just uh, no training just kind of blindly going and go oh that works oh that's good you know (laughs) did you always paint then because you're talking about medium and stuff like i never painted yeah i I always painted but what since childhood or sort of thing yeah since school really all right school was the place where i loved painting and you know was always like getting praise for my work that's the only praise i got (laughs) the only classroom where I actually got really good reports like George is creative everywhere else is like if you just stop dreaming looking out the window and being a useless waste of space I couldn't wait for the bell to go so I could go home and watch Junior Showtime <laughs> <laughs> well our final question is um, what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to in your in terms art? of your art or creativity don't edit yourself like just you know um yeah, just, and also kind of, exp- you have to, it's good to explain it to people. You know, when you give someone a perspective, because when you're looking at stuff, I remember years ago going to see that famous painting, it was like a blank painting. It was, I can't remember what it was called now, but I remember seeing it and, you know, everyone's like, what is this? It's a white piece of canvas. And I was like, yeah, but it's kind of emotional. And I think sometimes, like, it's the same with, like, instrumental music, like dance music or instrumental music. Sometimes... Instrument music is so lyrical, so poignant, so powerful because it gives you space to think something else. So art definitely is about, you know, if you're one of these people that just goes, oh, rubbish, or, you know, like you talk about star signs, you go, rubbish, you're missing so much magic. It's like there's just so much 
you're missing. I've never been a dismissive person. I always believed in aliens just in case. <laughs> I've same policy with God. Yeah, absolutely. I believe in all the gods, you know. But ultimately, um, yeah, it's about kind of using this space properly while you're here, just having real fun with this space. And, you know, just the best conversation last week, do you like Judy Dench? <laughs> I was like... Everyone likes Judy Dungeon. That's not a que- that's a question that answers itself, you know. But this is where you're going to now post this I'm interview. I'm going to, to give her her cake <laughs> for her birthday. I'm going to say it's vegan, sugar free. They'll all be like crying. No, it's it's. I'm taking her cake. I'm just going to deliver it. Apparently, she likes me, and that's good because who wouldn't like to be liked by Judy Dench? Exactly. And she's obsessed with trees, the same as me. Mm, trees. I actually love. Yeah, I love trees. Trees are like. I mean, I've always loved trees. When I was in Australia, I was obsessed because the trees in Australia are like unbelievable. They're like unbelievable. But actually, when during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time with trees, you know, and I started to look into like the, the way they communicate yeah. and all that interesting stuff about nature. And actually, I write a lot about nature, look at, about looking at a flower. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I got this line, it's such a tonic to be iconic and look a flower in the face. Because, you know, you look at a... Actually, one of the things, like, look at a flower. Flowers are essential. Everything on this planet is essential except for you and me. Like, we're not essential, but we're missing all the kind of magic around us. Mm. And I think that's what art does. Because you start to make art, you look at nature more. Mm. And you see faces in the trees and you see things in walls. And you... This is a great place to be because it's an art haven around here. Everywhere around the East End is all about art. They do tours. You can hear people talking outside the door. It's really fun. And it's, you know, I'm living next to Gilbert and George, yeah, which is yeah. insane. Some, I'm sure some frequencies Tra- are coming through the world. Tracy used to live on the street, so it's Absolutely. quite an iconic so, yeah, area. No, it's a, yeah. It, it's a really, it feels like you could put something up on the wall and it'll stay there, which is interesting. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you and, mean like street art in some capacity? Yeah, I've seen a few things like, oh, well, that, that, that's going to last and it's still there. Mm. There is definitely... There's something very French about this place. So I feel like I'm in France the whole time. I'm like, because it's ugly, but it's beautiful. And, you know, it feels like I'm in the right place right now. I'm not here for much longer, but I, I've had a really great time living here. The idea of, like, looking at nature and then thinking, oh, sorry, making art and then you notice nature. There was an artist that I know you liked, which was Dougie Fields, who passed away um, a year or so ago, sadly. Yeah. And he was such an amazing person. I love Dougie. But can you quickly speak about him before we finish? Because I love Dougie. Well, Dougie was one of the people I knew that was an artist and was quite successful and he was always very, it was very, you knew his work. It had a real look about it mm. and it was consistent and really he was like a real brand. You know, when you saw Dougie's work, you knew who it was, whether it was on a T-shirt or, you know, and I should have got a painting. I could have got one, you know, there's so many times. It's that thing of like taking things for granted that you were around, you know, and I definitely... If I was to have a painting by someone I love, I wouldn't sell it. I'd keep it because it's because I understand that the, one of the most important things about painting is the intention of the person, their lifestyle, the way they walk around, you know, who they are. It's, you, you know, that's why that Basquiat was great because it was very honest and it was real and it was just of the moment. And, you know, it was and he was moody. You know, he was moody as you are when you're that age and you think everyone's telling you what to do and... I remember being around it and just being like, oh, I didn't get it completely because I knew other people that did stuff like it. So I was like, oh, it reminds me a bit of John Mabry, mm. who was an artist at the time, became a filmmaker. A lot of, I had a lot of John's work in the early days and that punky kind of whole sort of disrespectful 
way of drawing that's, you know, I don't think that's the right word, but just like irreverent. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's a face, you know, <laughs> look the eye, you know, and just almost like, it's almost like sometimes doing it blind, you know, because I don't never, unless I'm drawing someone specific, I never know what I'm going to do, but I definitely draw a lot of punks. I love punk, punks and drag queens. Mm. Heaven. Did you ever meet Derek Jarman just before we go? Love Derek Jarman. Did you ever meet yeah, him? Yeah, of course. Did you? He was so sweet. He loved me as well. I mean, I know it's a bit of a weird thing to say, but, you know, he's one of those people that I really respected. And I just, someone that was really close to him said, you know, he loved you, George. Because like, oh. I met him a lot, you know, and um, I, you know, loved his movies. I just loved him. He was a very sweet man. Like, really nice. Like, always nice. Even if you weren't. Famous, because I knew him before I was famous. I knew him in the seventies when I was a kid, you know. So I was—I had my nose on the edge of that whole scene, you know. Andrew Logan, Derek, yeah. all those people. I was sixteen, but I knew all those Dougie, all those people. Luciano Martinez, you know, was an amazing painter as well. Friend of Dougie's that died in the eighties. So yeah, I was around that, you know. But it was a little—they were a little bit older than me, different type of gays, you know. But I remember all those people and being. Unimpressed, but also impressed. Because <laughs> oh. I was trying to forge my own identity. So everyone was like, oh, you know. I think more, more like Marilyn in those days. Everything was like, I've done that before, you know. You must have people turning up outside your house like you did for Bowie. That must be, the, again, the cyclical thing that must have happened to you many Not times. Not so much now, but when I lived in Hampstead a lot for years and years. And, you know, I dealt with it differently depending on what was going on for me. Now I'm a little bit more, like, easygoing about everything. Like, you know, if somebody comes up to me... I mean, first of all, people come up to me all the time. I'm not unfriendly. I, you know, always think to myself, I can be really nice to that person. They're going to go away and be in a great mood all day. Yeah. Like, if I meet someone and they're not nice to me, even if it's someone in a shop, I'm like, how rude, you know? I mean, I just think if you have consciousness about your behaviour, you can always bring a situation back to peace you know when you have that's a real gemini trait we can wind people up and then go right now i'm only joking and we can bring them back to humor and that is a real quality of gemini's i i find anyway and i'm i can go there if you want to have an argument but i'm always like okay no we don't need to it doesn't need to end like this. <laughs> you know, you had a regret about not having like a painting by Dougie, for example, or whoever it might be, Warhol, Warhol. whatever. Um, do you collect, or ha- have you, do, what, what? What do you live with? Because in here, you're actually bits. making your own art, and then I've got a few that. bits. I've got. Um, oh, there's I've got a Bowie. Behind I've got us. a couple of Bowies. I got a Bowie. What Bowie artwork? I've got a Bowie art. Yeah, I've got the monkeys. Really? Yeah, it was gifted to me. Because he did an exhibition in London, didn't he? Yeah, no, I, this was given to me by a friend as a present, and then I w- I've got a lithograph of his eye, Whoa. and I've also got a a mask that he did of himself, which is a cast of his face that he did in the 90s. I bought it at the expo in Islington. And oh. I was like, oh, I've got to have it. There was only like 10 of them. Yeah. But it's older Bowie. A lot of people don't realise it's him. It's him with, you know, the older man. Wow. And what else? Is the eye by Rankin? Because Rankin did a picture of Bowie like holding Yeah, it must, be, it must be by Rankin. Yeah, it's yeah, like, a, it's a lithograph of his eye. It's amazing. I bought it same time as I bought the, the face. And, I read um, a really interesting thing Rankin said about that shoot, which was that he was so expecting Bowie to arrive and it all be about Bowie, and he said he wasn't at all what he was expecting. And actually, he feeds off the energy of the photographer, and it was almost like this <clears> kind of, like, you know, quite spiritual thing between the two of them. Bowie was really interested in other people. Yeah. Or uh, even if he wasn't, he was really good at 
seeming to be. And I think it was genuine. Yeah, you know, I, think I think it was too. When I took my friend, I took my friend Michael Cavadias to dinner with Bowie and I rang him up and I was like, don't dress up as Bowie. And he goes, of course I won't. And he goes, but I was about to dress up as Ziggy. He was laughing. Then we went to dinner and he was like as mad a fan as I was. And he couldn't believe I'd invited him to dinner. And I say that Bowie was really gracious and was like, hello, who are you? Who are you? What's your name? Michael. He goes, what do you do? He goes, this and that. And Bowie's like, what's this and that then? What, you must do something. Is it this or that? And then he goes, oh, I'm an actor. He goes, an actor. And he was so sweet and he was telling him. And then Iman said something and Bowie goes to Michael, oh, don't listen to her. She's just too beautiful to have an opinion. <laughs> oh, my God. He said, she's just a model. That's oh. what he said. And it was like, oh, my God. But he was so interested in what I thought about this, that, and the other. Not about him. I wasn't, like, sitting mm. there going, oh, this album, and, you know, mm. I wanted to, but mm. I behaved myself. But um, he was just beautiful, just very nice, kind. You walked away going, oh, my fucking God. You know yeah. what, though? I think so many people must just always do that and talk to them about them, that it just becomes, like, one-sided conversation. I remember meeting mm. Paul McCartney at a friend's birthday about 15 years ago, and he'd spent the whole evening talking to everyone about them. He was asking me questions about me, and I was just a bit like, why is Paul McCartney interested? Like, it was, it's so shocking, but, but they also, must just you know, always get one-sided. How many one-sided. Beatles questions can you That's answer I mean. in a lifetime? Yeah. It's like people would say the weirdest things to me, and I'm like... <laughs> yeah, because it, it shuts down the conversation, though, I think. It does. Yeah. Well, it's, it's back to the narrative thing of, like, let's narrow down the narrative, let's stick to this, mm. when it could be something more, you know? More is always good. More. Let's have more well, this of everything. Is, let's do more and more of this in the future. This more been... love and less misery. Well, also, you have that amazing song at the beginning of that album, the dub album, um, which is called Bigger Than War. And love I love that record. Bigger Than War. Which is actually... Um, With George uh, Clinton. Bigger Than The Beatles. Yes. The Rolling Stones. Bigger Than Elvis. But not Yoko. Which everyone was like... <laughs> 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 Yes, I love Yoko Ono. Love her. Do you love her art as well? Love her her art. art. I've got one of her pictures. She gave me a little thing, Ask the Clouds. But it doesn't matter. It was like Yoko sent me this painting. And I was like, oh my God, it's like a little writing thing. But um, yeah, I covered her songs. And you've got to hear the original of Death of Samantha. It's the most beautiful song and, you know, but I say to people all the time, you don't really know what she does. Yeah. You see her scream and you think that's all she does. But actually, she was a brilliant lyricist. You know, that song, Death of Samantha, you've heard the version. Yeah, no, I, I she love wrote it. that. Yeah, yeah. I you haven't know. heard Yoko's version. I've heard. When I'm on version, the phone, yeah. I thank God I can smoke a cigarette while I'm dying inside. You know, it's like a friend gave me, a friend gave me shade so I could hide my eyes from the world today or something. It's just so beautiful. Mm. So beautiful. And it's really, if you love that type of emotional music, it's surprising. I got to give you a burst. Wait, hold up. <laughs> it's also very timely. I feel like we need more Yoko Ono right now. Do you oh, know what I mean? You know what? I was watching a documentary about totally John. totally and... swallow its pride yeah. when we lose Yoko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone, uh, after Yoko, would you sing us your bit from Do They Know It's Christmas? How, how do you feel about your voice now? Because I think your voice is sounding so fucking beautiful, George. Like, on, on the last album, it's, like, incredible, your voice. Well, You're I'm becoming, like, a kind done. of a jazz I'm singer or something. I've my teeth done. Your teeth done? Yeah, my teeth. And the, I think my teeth done. So Bowie. It's like Life on Mars. Yeah, it is, oh, actually. Space Odyssey. The way that it's recorded is, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm a cool chick, 
love of words. Every day I thank God. There's something about her that I just love. But I like unusual voices like Nico and Lou Reed. And mm. I don't really care about people who can sing big notes. I like Bob Dylan. I like people that can tell me a story. I've got a bit of an experience. Yeah, in and you can voice. hear it in their voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's kind of what I aim to be. That's what I'm trying to be all the time. I can't do that. You can't do that bit from Do They Know It's Christmas? <laughs> Stop. How's it going? Um, it's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. And in our, in our world of plenty, we can spread a smile of joy. Throw your arms around the world at Christmas time. Almost. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Thank you so fucking much. That is... Make sure you put some reverb on that. <laughs> That's that... just brought back a memory of mine that was repressed, which is seeing you singing live in heaven. You did a gig in heaven in like the early 2000s Yeah, or I don't know. You did a lot of shows there. With like actually, a live band and yeah, it was yeah. fucking amazing. Oh, I just remember. Yeah, we did it for... Um, the Culture Club. It yes, maybe it was Culture Club. It yes, was, uh, it was our. But it was of, a really small venue. It was yeah. like heaven, and I was like, "What the fuck?" It was is like this? a weird album launch thing. Yes. Yeah. I don't even know why I was. I was making music about then. And so we did like we did a load of songs, but we we actually did a load of songs that we didn't release. It was so weird. We, you were we always, really good that night. We always do. It was so. It's annoying. all coming back to me. You had so much stage presence, and you yeah. were like in such a good mood. It was the beginning of sort of me going, "Oh, I got this." Yeah. You know, sort of walking on stage and going, no, I don't need to be. It's not. It's not a cocky thing. It's. It's a more of an involved thing. It's that. Oh shit, we're in this together. It's about presence. But you want maybe. me to be. I know what you want, and and by the way, there'll be some things you don't want, but you'll like them. So it's the way you. You know, when you go on stage, don't apologise for singing a new song. Just don't say it's a new song. Don't throw it under the bus before you give it a chance. Tell them what it's about. Interesting. And I lie sometimes as I wrote this in the 70s. I wrote, I lie as I wrote this with Elton John. It's on the fourth album as a silent track. I just want people to go, well, you don't know if I'm telling the truth or not. And you won't be able to check until you get home. <laughs> I did a thing a couple of years ago. I did this song called Merry Christmas, Darling. And at the Albert Hall, I said it was a Dean Martin song. I said, I'm going to sing a Dean Martin song. You might not know it, but it's a beautiful song called Merry Christmas, Darling. And it's out. You can, it's getting played on uh, 365 Radio right now. And I sang it, and they were all like cheered. And I was like, "By the way, that wasn't that was my song." Because <laughs> <laughs> my manager goes, "That Dean Martin song," and he goes, "That one that I wrote." And he goes, "You're a cunt." <laughs> well, on that note, Merry yeah, Christmas, Christmas happy darling. Happy holidays. Yeah, well, this has just been we, amazing. How, how long ago we spoke about doing this? So long ago. And so I, uh, three Gemini, years. Something like that. Just, you've literally—I'm not joking—you've been on like our wish list, and I—I I was so relieved the other night when we saw you. Yeah, at well, Fat again, Tony's. it was like I saw you, and I thought. Do it. Yeah. You know, you've been, you know, because I kept going, oh, Well, I'm Daniel Lismore kept saying to me, George is such a wonderful I know, person. I, know, exactly. I love George. I know, George like, will love you. Like, George never gets to speak Tony about his art. And yeah. Daniel Lismore, you can kiss more. Oh, we love Lismore. <laughs> well, happy we holidays, you, everyone. Happy Thank holidays. You so happy much. Christmas, yeah. What, so you've got your book out at the moment, which has just come out, and it's yes, been a bestseller. Some were in the gay and lesbian chart, which I'm, I wrote yesterday. I'm the number one gay and lesbian. The book is called Karma. <laughs> Come you are on. the number one gay and lesbian. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a best cultural book. and social issues number one. And uh, one chart today, I'm uh, bestsellers. I'm uh, Britney, Brothers Drysdale, and me, which is not bad company. The three queens. <laughs> that is it. <laughs> <laughs> You've like, literally made it, hon. Um, we love that. Um, so the book is out. You're making new music. You're going to have a new album. Yeah, soon. tons of stuff coming. I'm trying to Moulin uh, Rouge. 
do um because i've got so many different types of things i've got the reggae stuff i've got dance stuff so i might create characters like bowie did like not aladdin saying but like dj boy george or i don't know i can't think of a reggae one any suggestions dub bender yeah <laughs> dub bender could be quite good i don't know if i'll get away with that but just so you know like people like oh, i want you to come and do your reggae stuff okay let me do that I love the idea of a rolling gig that it doesn't ever... I'd love to do like a residency where every night is different. So you say, oh, tonight we're doing jazz songs. You know, we're going to just oh, do fun. covers. Yeah, we're gonna, yeah. Tomorrow we're doing acoustic. I'd love to do a whole night of Dylan. It'd be good to see all your paintings come to life at these yeah, sort of venues. Yeah, and I started fun. to kind of do that thing of like, oh, you know, I'll write a song about it. And then how do I do a painting? Is your mind still prepared to be blown? What's I've got painting? some weird I, f- fixation about seeing a photography show of yours because you're such a prolific photographer. Yeah, I'd, I've love, got, I've I'd got love a lot to of see photos. that. And in fact, you should do like a talk up photography by George show. The, so the, there's a lot of stuff that I did as photos and then I put it on a canvas and I beat it. So beat over the photo, repaint it, which is quite an interesting way of doing things because you get such different things, you know. And in fact, there's a painting out in the hallway of this character called Rainblow from New York. It's an old painting from years ago. And... Rainblow was the last person to see me before I got arrested. <laughs> and I love looking at this painting because it brings back so many mad memories. Well, we're trying to take a photo of that now. Are we allowed to do that? Yeah, yeah, so you that, can, okay, yeah. Right. Well, we're, we're going to be posting images of everything we talked about today. And, uh, you yes. can go to Instagram at Boy George or at Talkart. Yeah. We'll be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. George. Bye, Robert. Bye, Russell. I love the way you've both got ours. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.